Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is episode 183, uh, brought to you as always by Tea Leaf Tea, La Pity Chocolat and Yeastie Boys. Wow, I had a conversation with Nathan Haynes, uh, an amazing New Zealand musician, uh, who I had only met one other time a couple of years ago. A few years ago, I met him um, at a gig he was doing, and, and I was playing some records afterwards, and we had a chat. We'd had a little bit of correspondence. I'd reviewed some of his albums and gigs over the years, and mostly favourably, as far as I remember anyway, and always been a fan of his work. I knew something of his story, but um, yeah, I was hoping that he would, would want to have a chat for the podcast and he did and boy did he have a chat we talked about everything I mean Nathan grew up in almost the equivalent of like a a circus performing family except instead of doing cartwheels and flips through hoops these guys were all amazing jazz musicians their their father was a great great musician their mother was um, an entertainer Joel his brother is a guitarist and a film soundtrack composer and Nathan you know started off on the on the recorder and moved up from there through the flute and saxophone families and has made a living since a teenager playing in clubs all around the world he was making money in Auckland when he was in high school and uh, then when he went over to the UK he started hooking up with people like Jamiroquai, Damon Albarn, Marlena Shaw played at Ronnie Scott's, he did a stint in the, well he's played all around the world he's come back to New Zealand and then been away again and in his story um there is a recent diagnosis of cancer and surviving a pretty brutal, gruelling operation in regime. Throat cancer would have to be a saxophonist's worst nightmare, I would say. And um, also several stories of addiction which he has overcome and was very, um, very keen to speak about. It's quite emotional, this conversation, and and we had a big hug at the end of it, and as I said, I only met him one other time. That was the kind of emotion that was running through this by the end, so, um, but man, what a story, and I, I hope you like it. I, I felt a great honour and privilege to sit with him and hear this story. Now, we did record this in a hotel foyer, so you will hear a bit of background noise. I'm choosing to believe that just adds to it and maybe unsettles some of the emotional tension of this in places, so buckle up for, a, for a, an amazing ride through Nathan Haynes' story. You grew up in a house of music with a musician father. Yeah. But when did you know that? Like, how how early can you remember back to being like, wow, this is the world, this is my world? Um, well, I guess my father started to teach me recorder and how to read music when I was four. Mm. We are living in... Um, in Birkenhead at the time, this is before I moved to, to Beach Haven. I moved to Beach Haven when I was six, I think. Um, but I remember distinctly being in their bedroom, like playing the recorder, reading the notes, mm. going, oh, I was quite into it. And then by the time I was six, uh, I started weekly lessons at, at a music, a Saturday morning music centre. And then I remember, once again, distinctly, just I found it really easy and really enjoyable. And so, you know, Seven, I started weekly private lessons with a, um, a guy in his 80s who was, um, had come out from the UK and he had white hair and he wore, he wore like a woolen suit, probably from the 1940s or something. Uh, and he used to play a wooden flute. Mm. So that's how old he was because, you know, they phased out, most orchestral players phased out those flutes in the 60s, you know. But yeah, yeah. Um, 
So, and I remember doing a concert with him when I was maybe, um, a, it was a duet, and I think I was eight. And I remember after the concert, he cried. Mm. And I thought, and he, he said to me, um, I think you've got something very special, you know. And um, I didn't really know, but then I joined the North Shore Youth Orchestra when I was nine. And you know, the second youngest person in the orchestra was about 14. Yeah. So here I was a nine-year-old <laughs> playing with all these teenagers, you know. Um, so, to answer your question, um, like, pretty, pretty early on. Pretty early on, I just, I just really um, identified with like, yeah. blowing into an instrument, and then, and I didn't start, I didn't really start learning jazz until I was maybe ten. I think my father gave me, I've got a photo in my family photo album. My father gave me a book of Charlie Parker solos to learn when I was about ten, and so ten through to twelve, yeah. Then, you know, I guess, 10 or 11, Form 1, I was all about jazz, you know, yeah. so that was, that was the 80s. Um, now, how out of place were you in that, like in school? Like, obviously, there's jazz in your home. Yeah. You've been brought up into that world. That's why, you've, that's why you're studying it and playing it and absorbing it. But, you know, what, about when, what about when you go to school? What are the kids listening to and what do they make of that? Were you on your own? <laughs> yeah, I was very on my own. I remember um, in Form 3, it was just going on mm. a few years, but we had to bring a song to school. This is at Northcote College. Um, we had to bring a song to school to play, and I remember everyone bought an album because it was, you know. Mm. And I bought uh, a Weather Report album, Volcano for Hire. <laughs> and I played the song, and everyone in the class was like, what is that? But before that, I can I tell you what happened. I remember in Form 2, uh, so let's see, I was 14, so that's uh, 1984. No, 1986. Um, no, Form 2, I was 12, what am I saying? Sorry. 1984. All of a sudden, Beat, like, Beat Street came out, and then everybody was bopping at lunchtime mm. and doing backspins on pieces of cardboard. And this is in Beach Haven, so... You know, there was more Māori and Polynesian kids mm -hmm. in my school than there were Europeans. Um, you know, it was it was a pretty rough neighbourhood back then. It was akin to probably something you'd find out in South Auckland uh, back then. There's a lot of state housing, and you know, mm. but there was a, there was also um, quite a great community. Like the music teacher was a was a was a Māori guy. There was a lot of Māori um, songs and stuff in school. We didn't do today, but. A lot of the teachers are Māori and Polynesian. So that was really cool. Um, so, um, of course, hip-hop and the culture mm. was really took to that area. Mm, mm. Uh, as opposed to if I'd grown up in Parnell. Mm. Probably Bonsonby or Raylan would have still been really like that. Mm. So when I first heard it, I was like, this sounds like jazz to me, you know, this is when I was 12. Mm -hmm. So, and that is still the same today. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, even way back then, I, um, I heard the similarities between, well, because they, they were sampling jazz. And you've got a little brother, who, younger brother. Yes, 18 who, months younger. I was going to ask, I didn't quite know the age difference, yeah. but um, so he comes up into this world too. Yeah. And he's 
you know, still playing music and, and doing very well with it. So you both have the same training well, in his, a sense. Yes. <laughs> I mean, instruments, but... I'll tell you now, um, my parents uh, became Jehovah's Witnesses and when they were married in 19, around 1969, 1970. They were married. Their celebrant was Chick Little Wood. <laughs> So my wow. parents, yeah, my parents um, had been, you know, in the entertainment business, and mm. my father had been, you know, playing for for his teenage years through adult. What did your mum do? My mum was uh, was actually a dancer. Right. Yeah. So they actually met. Like, yeah. And um, so um, you know, they they were looking into a lot of as a lot of people were in the late sixties, mm-hmm. looking into Eastern mythology and stuff. And then they found they met a friend through Jehovah's Witnesses, and they. You know, at that point, the Jehovah's Witness thing was okay. The world's going to end in 1972, but here we are, and yeah. <laughs> did it. Maybe, so, maybe in some senses it did. But <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, it was an energy crisis. Yeah. Um, um, so, you know, um, we used to play music in the, in the Kingdom Hall. They call it or the church. Mm. No, it's not, it's not. I just saw the Aretha Franklin film. And oh, nothing. I missed it last week. Oh, oh my God. I just cried all the way through. I bet. It wasn't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was quite sort of Protestant and with piano and song, you know. So my, but anyway, my brother and I played at the, at the meeting. They had an old piano player, and so Joel played guitar and I played flute. Um, then Joel did lessons with... Um, there's a Māori guitarist called Ricky. Anyway, he got taught by his dad. Um, and then Joel had a similar path, was playing, started on ukulele, playing guitar. Mm. Um, so then at the, around the age of 10 or 11, my dad started Citrus Jazz. And then I remember I got my first paid gig. I think I got 150, no, I think I got $50. Um, when I was 12, and it was down at the Tamaki Yacht Club, wow. along the thing. And I remember, I couldn't believe it because I, there was a smorgasbord and I could eat everything. <laughs> and I got paid. paycheck, that was the real. <laughs> yeah, and I got paid. And I was like, oh my God. But you know, at the age of 10, I did a three week tour with the North Sheath Orchestra by yeah. myself. Yeah. And I remember um, I busked first in Takabuna and then in Queen Street, and I saved up a lot of money to, to do this thing because my, my parents weren't getting a lot of money. Um, my dad stopped playing and well, I remember going to, my dad used to play six nights a week at Fisherman's Wharf which is um, off the Harbour Bridge, mm-hmm. it was a venue. This is back in the old days when mm-hmm. there was live music everywhere. He stopped playing and then got him, you know, some got menial jobs and all sorts of stuff for a dental firm and then sold tools for a tool company and you know got very grumpy not playing music and then when I was about 13 my father my mother said this is ridiculous and bought him a bass so my father said why did he give it up was it just the the, the idea that he had to go and get to provide personal for the reasons, family or I think right, personal he, was, he was burnt out on some level I don't know if he was burnt out I think you know um I think maybe there was a bit of pressure from the, from the church. Right, I was say, yeah, conflict. Which around. is quite funny because you know, later a lot of there were a lot of Jehovah's Witness musicians who came to New Zealand and like Larry Graham mm, did mm. a talk at our congregation and he came to lunch. Mm. Can you believe?
believe it. <laughs> so the famous Larry Graham. Yeah. And um, my, I tried to ask him, I think I was about 13 or 14 at the time, I said, tell us about Sly. And, oh, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But he did have, I remember he had lots of gold jewellery. Yeah, you know. yeah. Wow. Yeah, and then Benny Golson was another guy who came to New Zealand. Of course, he, Benny, um, was an incredible musician. He wrote the theme mm. to Mash, mm. and is an incredible arranger and musician. Um, I met Dad was playing with him when I met him. Um, George Benson, when he came to New Zealand, he you know hooked up with Joe's Witnesses. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think back then the uh, music and particularly mm-hmm. jazz was looked on as being a bit dodgy, but it's it's not like that now. Mm. Um, you know, so, so at the, yeah, we started playing with my father and he got a band together called Second Generation and there was a program called Jazz Scene on in the 80s. Mm. I don't know if you remember it. I only know it from, you know, reading about it and clips and stuff. Yeah. So I've got some, what I should try and do is um, for your podcast, but there's some, there's, I've got a videotape and there's some stuff there. We're playing with um, Martin Winch, who's wow. dead. Yes, yeah. Bruce yeah. King. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we did this fantastic show. I mean, I look back at it. You know, my father was, was a real hard taskmaster and he was he was quite hard on us and that he um, made us play these difficult, very, very difficult things. Mm. Um, and we used to practice for bloody hours. And I remember, you know, in the summer, um, you know, I'd, my friends would be running around outside and we'd be stuck in this hot room practicing, you know. Oh, God. Was he hard on, you know, was he exacting as a musician with everyone he played with, or do you think he was, he was, he saw something in you guys, he was, he was building you guys on some level, obviously, too. Like, well, I think... Have you worked that out, like... He, he didn't really, he didn't really lead his own bands, mm, so I think... So this was his chance. <laughs> this was his chance to sort of, mm. you know, and it was great, because then he got to sort of go out there and, and show off... Show off the family. Off the prodigies, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and then, so then we started doing the... Jazz and Blues Festival, which was run by Tommy Adderley. Mm-hmm. Um, and back then, those, these, the, you know, they're in places like the Sheraton, there are thousands of people, mm-hmm. and they used to have a, all these visiting American musicians, you know, people like Johnny Griffin, I remember, came down one year, Pete Chrisley, who played mm-hmm. the saxophone solo in Deacon Blues. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were wonderful festivals, and uh, were very, very well attended, and they had big corporate sponsorship. And, you know, I remember we did the Fay Rich White, there used to be a Faye Richway series at the Art Gallery and um, and I remember being just so terrified about making a mistake. Yeah. You know. Then my father my brother was the same. We I mean we enjoyed it, but oh, I was just thinking. So, about I mean it. you were you were pageant kids on some level. We were yeah. My mum used to dress us, I remember <laughs> we got dressed, my mum got a deal with rage clothing and these like pastel shoes with little leather ties. Wow. You know? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> And, um, I know. Then, um, around, you know, 13, 14, I started playing at the London Bar with my dad. Mm. So my dad was, was playing at the London Bar with um, Tommy Adderley, Murray McNabb, mm. Tony Hopkins. All those three people are dead. Mm. Um, Frank was up there as well. Frank Gibson, mm. still alive. Andy Brown was on off, dead. Um, and... So that was pretty cool. So then I learned, that's when I first met Kevin Field. Mm-hmm. So Kevin was coming up there, very young, 18 or whatever, and um, a little bit after when Murray stopped and, you know, mm-hmm. changed. 
Um, so that was really, even though I played with my dad, that was how I learned. So you, yeah, you had a, a whole bunch of fathers <laughs> in a musical I sense. did, and they yeah. were like, they, I mean, I used to wonder where they went in the break. Mm. They went to get stoned, you know. <laughs> I was like, where's everyone going? <laughs> so what were you doing? They were reading a comic book or something. I, I, I can't remember. I was having a Doris juice with my dad, I yeah, guess. Yeah, heading up the buffet. <laughs> but, yeah, they didn't have a buffet. Um, so, yeah, and so then I remember 15. Oh, so I met Grant Chilcott. I met Peter Ehrlich when I was about 15. Mm. I, I had a gig with my father at... This is before it was Saliba, it was called um, Mirage. My father was playing with a saxophone player called Dale Barlow mm. from Australia. He, 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 was, he used to play with Art Blakey and Art Jazz Messengers. And he invited me to sit in, I was 14. And I got what they call roasted when he did the classic asshole, fucking asshole, jazz thing of, of counting in a tune and a really difficult key ridiculously fast. Mm. And I didn't really know, and I got, you know, I got roasted. Mm. And um, this is very common in jazz circles. Yeah, and your head cut. <laughs> you know? And so it was quite a good lesson. Um, so anyway, I think down that night I met Daryl Ward, and he sort of introduced me to some of the cool people. Photographer who's still a really good friend. Mm. I also met Peter Ehrlich, and he said, come down to my club. And he was running, he had a club there called uh, Roma. And that was underneath from mm. the Pacific, you know. Um, and I also at that time met two brothers, the Harrop brothers, and their father is, um, uh, uh, not Steve Harrop, um, but anyway, they're from a very musical family, the Harrop family, mm. very, the, you know. Um, and they said, we've got a band called the Jazz Committee, come and play for us, and I was like, fuck that. Because, you know, to that point, I don't even play with my dad. Mm -hmm. So then, at the age of 15, I was in fifth form. Um, I was playing every weekend. Uh, I joined the band and they had all these gigs. So I was playing at the Globe. Um, I was playing at Hotel de Brett's on High Street. And then that was also, that was very early celeb days. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was earning hundreds of dollars a weekend. Yeah. And I was in fifth form. Did you have time for anything else or any interest in anything else like you you carried on at school were you yeah. were you obviously music is everything you're about and you're listening to things the whole time as well as learning and playing but do you you know do you have non-music friends do you engage in sports in any way are you a good student are you interested in any subjects outside of music or are you just living to play <laughs> well the sport thing I wasn't allowed to my brother played um a bit of football or soccer. Mm. Um, he was pretty good at that. Um, we weren't allowed to play rugby or do any of that because yeah, fans. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was. I represented my school in um, hundred meters. I was quite fast because I was quite tall and lanky. Mm. And um, I had a conversation. I remember with teacher and he said you know I think you've got real promise but you've got to choose between sport or music. And I said okay, I'm going to choose music. Yeah. Um, but I was very good at writing and, um, you know, I got the highest mark in the school for School C English and that was always my other favourite subject. So I was always really good at, um, 
yet writing and, mm. and mm. expressing myself through that and reading, mm. um, which helped so me. So you weren't you weren't falling asleep in class and dreaming of the next uh, gig. No, but I did like get. <laughs> I got a like I think I got a C one for music. In, in fifth form, so you know, yeah. no, it must try harder, but one for ability. I've still got the school report. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> I think it was a D one, even, I can't yeah. But you know, music for me was just really enjoyable. In the, um, so, you know, fifth form, um, I was pretty bad at maths. It's quite funny because music's quite math. Mm, mm. um, I went back to sixth form, I dropped maths in sixth form, and then by that stage, I was going to clubs in the weekend and earning lots of money, um, you know, probably quite tired in school, but, but doing all right. I, I think I got top of the school in sixth form English, I remember, uh, if I remember rightly. But I got such good grades for English, I did it, I left school and then went to ATI and did a journalism diploma. So I got my um, mm. shorthand in typing. This is back when, you know, I had to do my um, typing. Oh, blind test, like a blind test. Yeah, yeah. And I did my, um, I did my uh, work experience at the Herald mm. when it was down on Fort Street mm. with the old press, with the old guys smoking and the yeah, yeah. typewriters. Yeah, yeah. I feel very lucky I saw that. Yeah, yeah, you know, because, yeah. It's a relic, yeah. Well, it was right at the very end. And, you know, when I left school, well, sorry, when I stopped ATI, I got a, I worked as a journalist for two years at the Sunday News. And it was right at the very end of this, um, when it changed to the new office, when it went to early computers. And um, I think they were still smoking in the offices, but you know, the old newsroom was the click. Yeah. You know, doing, I do remember when I started Sunday News, you know, having to put in the piece of um, carbon paper and putting one copy of yeah. the sub. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. So that was really neat, and I really enjoyed that, and I did music reporting, and I did, um, I did a, um, I did a, column called Justice John when I did a lot of court reporting. Mm. You know, but then I was, I left home when I was 17, I had a bit of an argument with my father and he said, it's my way or you're out. And I said, see you later. You know, I already had a car by then. And I was like, and my father- Yeah, I was gonna say, I mean, I didn't want to put this rudely, but I was gonna say, what what was happening to the money you were earning? Like, were you in control of at least some of oh, that? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, my So you had means, you know, yeah. far beyond most people your age oh. at that time, yeah. No, and so that was it, I was yeah. out. So and, you could uh, be self-sufficient yep. on that level, yeah. Yeah, sure, and then I, my first apartment was a lovely deco apartment in Wakefield Street, um, which is way down to Wheelham. And I have this fantastic apartment. <laughs> I, I remember I bought my first Citroen DS, you know, and I was I was I was buying um, you know wonderful suits, and, you know, I was living the life. Um, and um, then I got an AGC Young Achievers Award at 19, and then I left New Zealand and then went to New York, and I studied with um, Joe Lovano, uh, George Coleman. Did some private lessons with him, and then that was my, you know, introduction into really the real, the real the world, real world of you know, forget about the fantasy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to live, you know. I, and then so then I came back to New Zealand, and then went straight back, and then I, I was there on and off for three years. Mm. And you know, that's when I experienced um, poverty. <laughs> you know, just existing on my wits. Yeah. But it was great because um, I learned. And how critical acclaim doesn't pay the bills. <laughs> No, but but I, I you know when I was there I you know the musicians I buy you 
was great. I mean, a lot of musicians. And, and that was when I thought, well, I, shit, I can play, you know. Mm. By that stage, you know, by my own admission, I was still, even though I could read music, I was still playing a lot by ear. Mm. So, um, I'll get on to that later. So then I, of course, then, early 90s, my love of hip-hop really went to the next level and I got to hear a lot of hip-hop in New York and New York then was still very much the old New York and you know it was just amazing man and, I, and um God, oh, I was, you know, jamming, I was playing in a band called Groove Collective on and off those guys who I'm still really friends with mm. Jay Rodriguez was a saxophone player, we hooked and he came out to New Zealand he, funnily enough Jonathan Crayford ended up being the piano player for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary Bartz produced their first album, uh, who of course produced um, Silly Dan. Um, sorry, not Gary Bartz. He's the guy who produced Silly Dan. So, yeah, anyway. I'm blank too. Um, so yeah, it was this amazing time of this jazz and hip hop, and it was fucking massive worldwide. So I came back to New Zealand and I made Shift Left. So that's how I made that record. Mm. I um, was obviously new to some of the guys and I had the sound in my head. But um, that record was very much along the lines of what I was hearing internationally. That first Roots album. Yeah. Um, the acid jazz thing in the UK. Yeah. You know, I was going to say there's some international bench, you know, benchmarks. But uh, even obviously Quincy Jones is back on the block. Yep. Yep. Miles Davis do bop to it. Do bop. Yeah. Well, yeah. I didn't really like the album when it came no. out because I thought I could do better than that. To yeah. be honest. You know. <laughs> well, and I, you know, and, and and you did because like I've listened to Shift Left and Do Bop back to back recently. Oh yeah. It's funny what stands up from that era and what doesn't. You know, we have our own nostalgic yeah. things we bring to them. Do Bop was massive for me because it was among the very first Miles Davis things I heard. So oh, wow. I understood him as this great. Yeah. Player, that's interesting. Just, just a, you know, and it's often about that, isn't it? When you, that's interesting. So you know, I tutu and do bob. Yeah. Other things I heard first. Wow. Now, that's now nice. they're both strange albums, yeah. but they're not. I can't discount them. No. But uh, I, uh, they did the right thing for me in terms yeah, of. It yeah. wasn't long afterwards I was on yeah, kind of blue and yeah, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. everything else. It yes, became a yes. massive Miles fan. So that's but they're funny. still wrapped up in there somewhere. And I, I've, I've, I've just started a series of posts called um, "Shit That's Good Crap Albums That I Love." And, um, and 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 one of the first ones I wrote about was Dubop because yeah. I'm like you know I I know objectively this is not a great record it's also yeah. problematic because it was put together after he died and all of that sort of stuff but but there's something in it for me but then when I listen to it I'm like God it's dated it's weird yes. but I think you know yeah. you know Shift Left's not dated and I think um, Buckshot Lafonk had something about it even though oh, I really know, like that album yeah because that's more yeah. contemporary with uh, with what you were doing I, I definitely identify with that yeah. you know with Brentford yeah, yeah. Um, the funny thing is is that you know when I was 17 I, I've got a photo which I can give you mm. you know when I was 17 this is the sort of teenager I was <laughs> Winton came into town and played at the yeah. the OT Centre I can't remember if I was given tickets or what but after the concert I jumped up on stage and went out to the band room and then I met the outside player and I said can I can I play your horn and I said he said yes so I started playing and then Winton came walking around the corner with his trumpet and said yo who's playing that and I said it's me and he goes 
Bill Watkin. Uh, what's your name? And I said, oh, you know, Nathan. And I said, play some more. So then we jammed. And then I said, what are you doing tomorrow? And he said, oh, I've got a day off. And I said, well, shall I pick you up? And, and he said, sure. You know, pick me up at 10 o'clock. So I spent the day with Winter. Wow. <laughs> and I took him, I picked him up. He was staying in a hotel, I remember, over on the North Shore in Takapuna. And he had a piano in the room. Mm. And then I took him around Auckland. We went up down to Eden. Um, I took him some tourist things. You know, mm. we went back to the hotel room. And then he said, right, let's do some play. So I think I said, oh, the first thing I said was, um, it's Stella by Starlight. Mm. And we played it through. And he said, yeah, you play great, you know. You... And I, obviously we spoke about our fathers. Mm. And yeah, well, it was a very similar <laughs> well, yeah. sort of setup. Winton, <laughs> I guess Winton was in his mid-20s then, maybe. Yeah. He's, I thought of his being he was much older, but he yeah. wouldn't have been that much older. I was 17. And then he said, okay, here's some advice. He said, learn the, learn the words to all of the songs that you're playing. So do you know the words to Stella by Sun? Do you know who wrote it? Do you know it was a show song? Blah, blah, blah. So that was a very, very good piece of advice for me. Because after that, I went back and learned, oh, that was written by Cole Porter. And for me, standards were things that were played by Miles. I didn't necessarily know that those songs were written in the 20s or 30s yeah, yeah, yeah. by Irving Berlin and they had yeah. a life as a show tune. Yeah, yeah. They were written by white Jewish guys for a start. Yeah, yeah. Appropriated in a jazz format. Mm. Um, so that was good. The other thing he said was get rid of that brecker in your tone. So <laughs> when I was, a, you know, as a young saxophone player, brecker was like this fucking god. Yeah. And um, so that was really, really good advice for me because, you know, every fucking saxophone player in the world wanted to be a Michael Brecker in the yeah. 1980s, you know. Yeah. There's, there's something very white about his tone and an incredible player for a lot of people on many great recordings, but there's something very yeah, white Yeah, I'm not it. a... Oh, look, you know, I, you know, thank you <laughs> to Michael Brecker for what he's yeah, brought to music, but unfortunately... He... Yeah. He... Um, well, thankfully, it's gone a bit the other way. So, yeah, so luckily, when I got to New York, I'd had all that breaker out of my play, yeah, and I was when, as soon as he said that, he said, he said, you sound like Dexter, you know, like Winston said, you sound like Dexter, you should you play more like Dexter Gordon. So then I went very much into that school, yeah. and then got really into, much more into Wayne Shorter, and I, I stopped listening to Michael Breger and stopped copying Michael Breger. And so that was great, really a great piece of advice. Mm -hmm. You know, meeting Winston was a, was a pivotal moment in my musical journey because, you know, and he was the he was the guy with the I mean he still very much is but he was the guy with the keys to the kingdom right around the time you met him right like he oh. was he was young superstar and jazz was becoming cool again after a yeah. period of not being so and I he was one of the guys I had him as a mentor so he yeah. was right wow. together and then he came back to New Zealand and I was playing at a little place called Manifesto Bar which was on Queen Street which is now a Japanese restaurant. <clears throat> and Winton, I don't know how he fucking found out, but he bought the whole, he was playing with the Dirty Dozen Brass Band, was it? Mm. He was playing with, he bought the whole band downstairs, and I remember playing and looking up, and there's fucking Winton standing there with like about 15 black guys. Yeah. And he was like, yo, Nathan, you know, this is across the thing. And I was like, fucking hell. And so then, 
you know, the guy sat in on the second set, Winston wow. sat in, and oh man, it was so cool. And I got a whole load of photos with him and all the other guys, and then funny thing is, is that um, <clears throat> all the guys in the band were going, oh, this, you sound fucking, this is great, I wish we could play music like this, because we've played this old shit with fucking Winton, you know. They were really moaning about him, man. It was really funny, you know. So funny. Um, but anyway, that was the, that was what was going on in my life, in my life at that time, in my 20s, which was really, really yeah. cool, you know. You know, Joe Levano was, I, I met John Schofield, he did like, a, there was a Sony Young Jazz Musician thing, which I won, and he was a judge when I was 18. Mm. He wrote letters for me, and I had him writing a letter saying, I think Nathan's great, you know. And I remember when I got the AGC Young Achievers board, it was Andy Hayden was on the board, you know. Mm. Fuck, now I'm thinking, <laughs> you've got an all black there with a letter from John Schofield. <laughs> and me wanting to study in New York, I didn't even think they would have had any comprehension of, they wouldn't have even known who John Schofield was, mm. but I must have had something. You know, they, they said, okay, you can have the 20 grand, you know, to go and study. Um, the fact that it was a letter from a, guy in, a, York, a yeah. guy in New York yeah. would have probably been enough then, right? But like, Sko at that stage was, 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 he was playing with Miles. Yeah, like, yeah. He was playing with yeah, Miles at yeah, that stage. Yeah. I mean, you know. On those other problematic but interesting Miles <laughs> Davis albums. So, <laughs> yeah. so you know, uh, so then, then I made shift left and, um, which I really enjoyed making, but I was already really over it. And by th 1995, I, I, you know, 94, I was in New York and, you know, I was very, just wanting to get the hell out of New Zealand, mm. you know. And I made Shift Left, but what happened with Shift Left is, it was recorded at the old Revolver, and Steve Garden was on, you know, how big it Yeah, yeah. And, um, and then the record company said it's not good enough, let's take it to Alan. And so it just delayed everything. And all I wanted to do was get the fuck out of New Zealand and get to London because I was like, I want to go to London, it's the next thing, you know. And then, you know, there was three months or whatever we spent taking everything off the 24 track, putting it on the fairlight. But I'm glad we did because, you know, Alan, we've become really good friends again since. Alan's such an interesting guy, man. He's... You couldn't make Alan up, you know what I mean? I don't know if you've ever met him. But I haven't, no. He's, he's, he's a bit of a savant sort of genius in yeah, his own way. I've you know? heard lots of different positive, interesting stories about him. Yeah. He, he's, he's really um, an interesting guy. And, um, you know, and so we made that record and then we did things like did some scratching overdubs. Some of the scratching was on the original album. I mean, I could play you. I might even, you know what I might do for this podcast? Um, you, when I went, when the whole thing with Universal started and Simon recently, mm, mm. Universal said, look what I've got for you. And it was a cassette of the, um, of the original demos I recorded. Wow. So, so, Victor Stent, um, Victor Stent said, okay, I'll give you a thousand bucks. So you know the story um, of Giles Peterson. I was playing yes. the celeb. Yes. Giles said, recall this guy. So Victor went, right, I've just been chatting to Giles. That was the first time we had Giles. I've just been chatting with Giles and, um, you know, we should record you. 
So I did a thousand dollar demo at, at an analog studio owned by a guy called Joe Gube, who recorded quite a few bands. We recorded straight to two track, and it was there was about twelve of us, string quartet. Now I played them to Gary, and he was like, stood there with his mouth open. He was like, this sounds exactly like the album, and I went, yeah, well. Because his question was, did you have a clear idea? And I went, okay, Gary, I'll play the demos. And he was like, fucking hell, you had a very clear idea. Some of the demos sound exactly the same. Wow. Of cassette. So, um, you know, we recorded the album. Alan, you know, Alan did his thing. Um, we did some overdubs. Um, one of the things which which is in that, the, the Metro article, mm. um, Alan got Paulie to do some vocals over that song yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And I remember being in London and getting the CD and listening to it and going, what the fuck? I never asked for those vocals to be on there. <laughs> you know? It's funny, isn't it? I, again, it must be that nostalgic thing. I was listening to it the other week and that was instantly a standout track to me because I guess, you know, Simon's book about OMC and the doco yeah, 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 and just the passage of time and yeah. here we are, 25th anniversary yeah, of the, the album and I, 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 I was just neither here nor there with that track for me any other time I'd listened to it but just last so week cool, I went, boy. wow man, it's cool and I really focused yeah. it on him and went, you know, you know, yeah, so it was more than just a hit single, there was something there, you know, like it's interesting. We had a we had a um, really freaky thing in the studio. Um, just I thought we had a track. I was like, is that me? <laughs> even though I know how four man it's happened a lot. I heard actually I did hear a Jamiroquai track here the other day, not the one I was yeah. on. But uh, um, so um, yeah, we were going through the stems because you know when we mm. did the album mm. for for Tiff Left, we went back through the stems and we remixed a lot of it, you know. Anyway, I found some raps on there that Paulie did that we never released and that was so freaky. Wow. Because I was like, and both me and Alan went, Yeah. Because, wow. um, you know, Paulie was a very good friend of mine and, you know, he had a lot of issues as a human being, but we were very, very, we were very close because before Paulie was, got famous, He'd spent a lot of, we spent a lot of time together and he sort of, he really looked up to me and, you know, and then Simon said, you know, Nathan's done this, you know, so, and then, you know, the sooner Simon, as soon as Paulie got big, he called me up and I was in London, this is in 97, and said, bro, it's going really big, I need you to help me put the shows together and tour with me, you know, so, mm. you know, that stage I just started, you know, drum and bass was fucking massive. Yeah. And I was putting stuff out, you know, hanging with Goldie and all that lot. Sound Travels era, yeah. Well, no, it's, well, well, sound, it's before. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. before Sound Travels, I was doing these huge drum and bass tracks, which yeah. were selling in the hundreds of thousands, you know. Mm -hmm. Goldie sized me quite a bit of money. What did you think of Simon's book? Did you read it? Oh, no, I didn't. Or you read couldn't. <laughs> I mean, oh, you're, you're you're in it, obviously, and you know that, and you know that you're part of that story, and you're positively portrayed oh, in the book. Simon a good yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I wondered know, what if you had a take on it. Unfortunately, you know, I um, I still find it, I still find it quite hard to talk about Paulie because um, and I, I mentioned it to and Gary, to Gary, I spoke about it with Gary, mm. but um, you know, what happened on the tour was really um was really uh, awful and quite upsetting for me because, you know, I was very close to Paulie and, um, you know, just 
to 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 see what happened to him. I don't blame anyone in particular, and obviously Paulie's own thing mm. didn't help proceedings. But you know, oh, I saw this, I saw this massive machinery in operation, mm-hmm. and I saw that it, you know Paulie didn't have any people around him to help him, and I just saw all these people making money out of Paulie, you know, Victor being one of them, you know, we're on tour and I remember it's so distinctively we're on a tour bus and then Paulie got the call and he just fucking went mental and he said fucking Victor has been stealing off me, you know and we were just sat there with our mouths open you know, we just couldn't believe it and then, you know, also we were on tour but it's just working so hard mm. on the other side of the world, you know it was alright for me, I was, you know, single living in London, but for people who are away from their families, you know, we were on the road for months and months and, you know, I, it wasn't all fucking rock and roll. I mean, I was sharing a room with Manuel Bundy, you know. Fuck, we got close, man. I don't know how we did it, but we're doing these huge shows. And, you know, oh God, it was, it was pretty fucking miserable most of the time, you know. And, you know, we were on, we weren't getting paid very much. I mean, Paulie wasn't making any money. Mm. He was number, I mean, Rick was number one in the States. And it just felt so awful, you know. And you'd meet these record company people, uh, well, they're talking about fucking Spinal Tap. You'd show up to another, you know, we're, we're getting drugs off them, and, you know, I was pretty, you know, I, you know, I was pretty into deep into my heroin addiction at that point on and off but we'd, we'd you know I remember we got to places like Detroit and I'd say to the record company you know oh where's the area that I should be avoiding and they'd go you know don't go down to 69th and Vine or whatever and I'd fucking get a cab straight down there and score some gear you know um, just for a minute can you just indulge me since you bring it up I mean this is a naive question but I have to ask it you know you're a student of jazz you've been a student of jazz almost your whole life and you've had these mentors telling you to go and check things out and to do things your heroin addiction is it at least in part a romantic idealism well, of course of, it was I, yeah. it feels I mean, I just, so that's why I have to ask it so naively no no of course <laughs> I mean, fucking hell, man. <laughs> you know, um, because they all—it's—it's it's part of jazz. It's, well, it's written no, into jazz's history, no, though, isn't not it? Not anymore. No, but it's written know, into the history. Everyone that you—these people you're talking I know, about. I know. Unfortunately, <laughs> though, you know. Yeah. I mean, fucking hell, did I pay the price? I mean, um, yeah. You know, I was 12, 13. I was in a Jehovah's Witness house. You know, all I wanted to do was, I wanted to be like my heroes. I was white, I was skinny, my parents were white. You know, I just saw jazz as this dream. Escape. And and an escape. And you know, unlike now, nowadays when, you know, you you go to jazz school and you know, I didn't have any formal training. I had lessons off, a few lessons, but I learned how to play jazz the old-fashioned way by using my fucking ear and by learning on the bandstand, playing with people, playing with my father and people like Murray McNabb and, you know, I learned how to play behind a vocalist by mm. playing with Tom Hadley, mm. who, who was a fantastic, he didn't, he didn't teach me anything, he just took me under his wing, you know, and, mm. and you know, but of course, I read all the books, Yeah. you know, you know, and I remember, you know, I remember, 
you know, first using in New Zealand, having my first taste in New Zealand, and fuck man, I remember, I like, the first, I was like the, the fucking doors to the kingdom open to me, you know? Mm. And, um, you know, the first time I used heroin, I, I my, my sense of, uh, you do hear about this a lot with this, with, with musicians, I think Miles even says in his book, but, you know, time for me, you know, I was always very aware of time mm. as a musician. My, mm. my time feel was very good. I can play you recordings I made when I was 15 or whatever. I've, I knew how to phrase. Mm. Phrasing, it's all about phrasing if you're going to play jazz. Unfortunately, if you haven't got phrasing, you're fucked. You know, I say it to my students. If you, if you can't phrase, mm. if you haven't got a good time feel, you're fucked. So, you know, as soon as I started using, I just my time feel well, everything slowed down the funny thing is when you listen to kind of blue you know pretty much the whole bands on here when um, miles isn't mm. coltrane isn't he'd stop by then bill evans clearly was but now look i am not saying that you've got to use gear to, to play jazz good <laughs> because you know i really made the price man you know this Cancer fucking almost killed me, you know, and I have no doubt in my mind that of the connection. Of the connection. Not only that, but you know, you know, I, I read about these guys and you know, I wanted to do that, you know. You know, I've been dealing with addiction my whole life, you know, and it's only you know, it's only recently when I am now completely clean and sober that I'm you know, I'm able to say that I will never ever use drugs or alcohol in my life ever again. But and we know a lot about addiction coming from trauma, and I was going to say to you earlier, you were describing an almost circus pageant upbringing in, into the performing arts in terms of the, the dedication and focus of it and the, and the, the fact that it's preordained almost. Um, so yeah. do, you th- do, you, do you look at it now no. with sobriety as that being, the addiction being an out, you know, some outreach of it? That no, no, I think... I wanted, you know, the thing is, is that I wanted it when I left you home. You wanted all parts of the story. When I left home, I want, I wanted that. I wanted to do that. Yeah. You know, but another musician like Kevin Feel, mm. and I, who, you know, I have the most, the most incredible, utmost respect for Kevin as a musician and what he's doing now. Mm. You know, Kevin's done the other way around. He's being completely straight. He's got a full-time job teaching university. You know, he's made enough money in his life to now that he can go to university off his own back. Now he's made these records with all these Grammy award-winning musicians. Mm. He's got himself into the scene via Matt Pentland, who's one of the greatest bass players in the world. Mm. You know, he is probably the greatest acoustic bass player in the world. Matt didn't have to go through fucking that. Um, I did it because I was a romantic, and I, mm. I also, you know, I wanted to be like. Yeah, you idealised the whole. I did, yeah. much to my fucking disadvantage in my life. You know, my that held me back, unfortunately, because of, you know, via addiction and via, you know, the asshole that I eventually became through addiction, and not having a spiritual basis in my life. You know, I fucked up so many things, you know. I look back on my life now and I think, fuck, you know, if I hadn't have gone down that path, I could have been a lot more successful than I, than I did. You know, you know, you know, by the time I got to my early 40s, I was a pretty fucking broken individual, you know. And my career was, you know, 
I was on the rocks, man. I was like, I wasn't going anywhere very quickly, you know. I mean, I went, I moved back to London, and I got a, an agent, and then, you know, I made, you know, thank God, I uh, had made the Poets Embrace and Fillion Skies. The Poets Embrace was a was was a real rebuild, rebirth, was a rebirth for me. And that, you know, what I did then is I remember I got to a point and I went, I don't know what I'm doing. It was like you made your first pure jazz album. Yes, and if at I the, needed to. At the, at what could have been the end of your career. Yeah. And it, yeah, and because I remember just falling in love with that album first hearing yeah. it, going, this is all the stuff this guy's always yeah. been it's able what to I, do. It's what you grew well, up it's with. It's what I was capable of, yes. like, but I well, hadn't yes. done it. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I came to a point in my life, mm. and obviously, you know, I, I, I only had three years of hearing addiction, and I beat that by, you know, I was cleaned by 90, by, 99, you know, I'd sick between 96 and 99. Mm. I was clean by 99. And that's why I found, you know, I became, went the other way, went into, you know, heavy Tibetan Buddhism and and meditation and macrobiotic living, which I needed to do. I, you know, I needed to clean myself up mm. because, you know, heroin addiction is very fucking messy. <laughs> it's, 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 not, it's not pretty. And, uh... You know, I remember writing out my will at that time because, you know, I'd already had two overdoses. And um, I died twice, man. I had the whole thing, the rushing down the tunnel. Wow. You know, the second time I overdosed, you know, I, um, oh, God, I, I just, it's so, it's so stupid. I, I, um, you know, just by the grace of God, I'm still here. You, know? you say, you say the second time, and when you say that now, I'm sure, or, or you know, that that realization, the second time, you know, what did it take to to go through it once and then put yourself through it again? I, I mean, I, I'll share this with you because um, you probably possibly know some version of this story, but I interviewed. Um, Sonny Rollins a few years ago on the phone and it was one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. Uh, I got off the phone punch drunk. I just about walked into the wall at home because I'd just been through his whole life with him. And he told me, and I'm sure he's told lots of people this, but you know, he at 19, as you know, was playing with people like Charlie Parker, which is like you at 17 meeting people like Winton and Lovano and so forth. That's his version of that. And he said, you know, I remember Charlie Parker looking me in the face and saying, don't, don't give up, get off the gear, don't do it. And he said, I've, I've, I've ruined myself. And he said, you know, I, I live with the fact that, um, you know, I went back and used. Yeah, After that, you know, I did I get cleaned. But, and and so these but stories, he himself up. He did, yeah. You know, he did the bridge, I had my own. Yes, yes. You know, my bridge, the bridge, yeah, yeah, yeah. was when I got to a point with my playing and I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I think I was doing, done a little bit of teaching at uni. Mm. You know, I was, I think, yeah, I'd left, I think I left London in 2004, 2005, mm. came back to New Zealand and did a little bit of teaching. And then these students would say to me, what are you doing? And I'd be like, I don't know. Mm. And so then I had this big realization, fuck, I've been playing by ear. So then I basically locked myself into a fucking room. And then I remember on my honeymoon, we went to, we hired it, we were in Provence, we had two months at a place in Provence. I took this massive fucking thing by a right, by a, it was a, uh, a university, someone in, from a university, um, masters, had done this thing about Coltrane's 
use melodic concepts and the link between um, um, oh, fuck me the, the classical composer uh, the cycle of thirds uh, there's a book written about it oh Jesus Christ I'm going to have to tell you after this mm-hmm. interview mm-hmm. I can't remember I forgot it God anyway so I took that Slominski's oh, so yeah. he done the cycle of thirds now and Miles talks about it Coltrane never really spoke about it but everyone knew and so what it does is it takes all these chunks of of Coltrane's or well, giant steps mm. is that's what it is it's the cycle of thirds and so so you you, you take a melodic centre you know, C A um, C um, A flat um, go to another third and then you back at C mm. so or C E um, A flat C and you go back around and so giants so what you do is you put a fifth in between the melodic centres and that's giant steps. So it goes down, then the second half of giant steps is going up. It's really lovely mathematical, I can mm. show you, but I don't bother. Mm. Then what, what he also did is he took, later on, my um, Coltrane took, like, with the modal approach, took, you're in the key, and then would extrapolate these cycles of thirds in. Mm. So, this side, this big realisation that, you know, I put in sort of scalistic playing and, and playing within the scale and playing within the modes and then I thought there was free playing what I discovered with when I did this is that there was no such thing as free playing when it got to Coltrane because it would sound free but it wasn't because when you when you studied the um, transcriptions which is what I did mm. I went every note made sense and I was like okay I want to get to a point in my playing where if someone transcribed my solos then they'd make sense and I could when I'm with a student I could say this is what I'm doing because I'd never done that so that's what I did on Pops and Brace mm. every single solo I did on that record I was if someone transcribed it and I hope they do then they'll see that everything makes sense within mm. the melodic mm. template now for me to get to that level was the most <laughs> was the most difficult thing I've done in my life but you know, before that, the most difficult. But you're coming at it from a base of, oh, yeah. of this is achievable if I do the yeah. work. That's yes. right. It's about recognizing yes. that because you've yeah. got an X amount of years of. Yes. I've done the graft. Well, I do. Don't use my ear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've done a lot of graft, yeah. and so it was. You had the yeah. facility. You just you know, needed to. Yeah. Find the time and convince yourself to undertake the work. Yeah, yeah. and then, but then, uh, you know, uh, some other person might get all of that down, mm. but then they don't have, you know, I'd been through heroin addiction, mm. I'd been through, you know, attaining a lot of success, I'd been through on the boat of my house in New York, I, you know, but I'd also been through another, another renaissance of my life, which was, you know, Sound Travels, fucking hell, mm. that, that mm. record was such a huge record for me, and it always will be. It, that you know, I always have people telling me all the, every week mm, mm. about how influential that record was and how it changed. It. You know, I, I look. Okay, Shift Left did that for me. You know, in New Zealand, and, mm. and it was released internationally. But Sound Travels is the Sound Travels is Sky for Hire. That that was a you know that. You know, I, I look back on that. Well, that's what I was getting at before. I mean, that's the culmination of your London experience. So you're doing all it the is. kind of techno and techno influence stuff, and then remnants yep. of that come through on sound travel. Well, but it's but it's built into another thing. But that was me, like shift left using. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that was 
Sound Travis and Skyfire were the natural progression of, of what I was doing with Shift Left. And, you know, in the show we play the last song on Skyfire, which is my favourite song on the album, Last Dance. We play that live and, you know, and I've been in touch with Phil and Mike Beto, who's my very good friend. And, and I said, we're finally playing it live. I feel like only now I'm able to, was it quite, quite difficult? demanding something. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so I'd been through that and then come back, you know, fallen out with Phil, which for whatever reason, and, you know, um, made a few ridiculously stupid things and my mistakes, whatever, in personal life, you know, whatever, you know, I left left London, came back to New Zealand, made that, made the, do the whole thing with the NZSO, yes. which was amazing because I sold out you know, I'll test it to Michael mm. Fowler. Mm. Then I did it again with Marlene Shaw, mm. sold it out again. Mm. NZSO thought I was the best thing they yeah. best person I worked with because I was selling out arenas and bring all these yeah. young people in. I vividly remember that show with Marlene and Shaw. Oh, that was so incredible. Great, you know. And then to have Marlena yeah. as a mentor. Yes. You know, that was just such a special time in my life, you know. Incredible. You, you've yeah. referenced Steely Dan a couple of times, and I, I think when I first met you, we haven't met one other time in person, but when I met you, um, we had a big chat about Steely Dan <laughs> and, and, and 70s stuff in that ilk and of that era, which we're both fans of. But um, you recorded FM yeah. with Damon Albarn yeah. singing, yeah, which is pretty, funny, yeah. pretty cool, pretty I, funny. I, you know, I was still, in the booth with him. Wow, yeah. It was, well, the thing is with Damon, he... We had a studio which was like five doors down the, when we were making Sound Travels and Sky Fire. Mm. And so he lent us quite a few of his synths. And so Phil became friends. I think Phil was selling weed or something. <laughs> I was just going to say, I didn't want to trivialise it, but I was going to say it's probably preferable to yeah. being addicted to heroin. Yes. As yeah. far as the come down goes, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, the, it's to move in the right direction. That's part of the culture for, for London. It was spliffs, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Couple, spliffs and tea, you know. Yeah. Um, so, Damon made quite a few synths and stuff, and, and then Phil said, I've got this song, will you, will you do it? And I think Phil had done something for Damon in return or something. Mm. So, Damon said, okay, Typical. We were recording. Um, we were recording a different studio, a big recording studio in North London. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a beautiful, beautiful, you know, a classic studio from the seventies. And um, Damon came in. He had a car waiting. He said, "All right, Nathan, let's do it." And I printed out the lyrics, and he didn't know the song. Mm. And so. He said, you come in the booth with me and tell me. So I was in the booth with him with a pair of cans on and I just sing him each phrase. <laughs> there, is something in, there is something in that because it is a, you know, I'm a massive Alban fan, like love most of the stuff that he's done, particularly post-Blur. Yeah, um, yes. But there is a laconic delivery going on in, well, that, in that song that... Well, laconic, yeah. <laughs> because 
he didn't know. Now you're explaining it. So I had to coach him in the booth. Yeah, while it was phrase by phrase. So Amazing. literally phrase by phrase by phrase. And then um, he overdubbed it low and then he overdubbed the high one. Well, that's very Steely Dan, you know, like, well, in, a know, way, in a way, in a way. It was very Steely Dan. In the piece by piece sort of, it was very we're going to be meticulous about this. Yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> We, we had, there was a lot of post editing. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of a lot of soft, digital software to get it. But yeah. you know, it's funny, I look on Spotify and that's still got more, yeah. probably more streams than yeah. most other tunes. Yeah. Um, well, this, um, again, you know, I mean, these records, I, I mean, I think this is really, I think all, all of your work really, but certainly. Um, Sound Travels and Squire for Hire, they stand up. I mean, the, I, I was listening to Squire for Hire recently going, man, the production yeah, of it, know, it's, it's sound, I just the, the overall sonic, it sounds beautiful. Well, you know, next year's 20 years of Sound Travels. Wow. And, um, you know, for, for the real, you know, for the Gileses and the, mm. and the, um, and the Norman Jays, mm. you know, also, you know, for, I, I had a lovely time with Danny Crivet when he was mm. out here recently. Mm. He broke. Um, this place in the States mm. and because he was playing at Body and Soul with, with Francois Gavorkian mm. you know so and, the, and he introduced it to Louis Vega and you know those guys were the biggest DJs in the world at that yeah, time yeah. and the club DJ scene was god it was so it's funny because people can't really imagine it now we're in club and clubbing but it was so massive then mm. and um I mean, it's still, club music is still massive, but it was massive, but it was underground because club music hadn't crossed over into pop music then. Mm-hmm. You know, so Sound Travels and Sky for Hire were underground records, mm. but they didn't, it didn't cross over into the pop mainstream. Pop music in 2000 was not, it didn't really reference um, club music as it did now, you know, like, I think it was Kylie Minogue, Everything But The Girl, they were starting to, Ben, well, yeah. actually, around that time, a little bit after being at a club, and I used to go in there, and Tracy used to come to my gigs, and I was doing singing ballads, and, you know, Ben was a big fan, and so there was that all that London bit going on for me, so everything but the girl, they, their records were, they were massive pop records, and I was referencing mm. house music, mm. Mm. when we made them, house music was still relatively um, underground, it went on to become very, very big in the mid-2000s. Mm. Um, Funnily enough, by that time, I was, I was like, I fucking had it with house music. Your journey and back to jazz by that. Well, I just, I, the thing <laughs> yeah. I didn't like, you know, I was, I was working so hard. You know, when when soundtrack was hit, you know, every I was flying out of the country every weekend. Um. You know, um, you know, my my, I was using a lot of coke then. I was using a lot of alcohol, um, but I was still, I was fine. Mm. I was. I was getting pretty tired, you know, that was, I, I look back on, I look at some of my friends who are doing it now, like Chaos and CBD, they're, they're, they're Kiwis, you know, mm-hmm. they're doing amazing. They, they're doing what I was doing 20 years ago, you know. Yeah. And I think, fucking hell, man. So, yeah. They're, they're big parties, you know, when I say parties, I was doing gigs and then partying until mm-hmm. dawn every weekend. Well, the other part of this um, puzzle I want to I want to hear about is how did you connect with Marlena Shaw? So Marlena, you know, bless her, bless her. Marlena, um, we got put on the same bill by a guy called Russ Jubry, and he had um, had these very famous Brighton gigs in Brighton called 
jazz pop or something, but they're they really massive. And he'd had this whole sort of, at the same time as Charles was doing the ding walls thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they really loved their sort of jazz dancing and goes back to the 80s. And there was always this, you know, Dr. Bob Jones, um, uh, Patrick Forge, Giles, you know, 80s. Um, Roy the Roach, they had this playing jazz music on Sunday sort of thing. And they, you know, they used to ever get kitted out. They still do it. Um, so Russ had this thing and when Sound Travels came out, um, you know, I was touring a lot and he put me in a head-to-head, Nathan Haynes, um, with Marlena Shaw, double billing, but then he asked me to play with Marlena mm. as a guest soloist. Um, and so um, he, the band was UK. Marlena had never toured the UK, so then we did this double bill, and then we did this big European tour, and then we did it like many, many, many times. Mm. Um, and we played, you know. We were the first tour we did um, all through the UK. We did Shepherd's Bush Empire. Um, funnily enough, you yeah, did Glasgow, Scotland. Funnily enough, the first gig I had with Marlene went a few days off. I had, I went on a big fucking bender on the Friday night, and then didn't go to sleep. Came to soundcheck mm. without having gone to sleep. You know, still out of it. <laughs> Stinking booze, all the rest, you know. And then Marlena took me aside after the gig and said, Get your shit together. You haven't been to bed. Go home, have a shower, get your shit together. You know? right. And I was like, Anyway, came, did the gig, I went home, managed to get myself together, fucking didn't touch the booze or whatever. Did the gig, and Marlena went, Well done, you know. So after that, I was like, Okay. Fuck, you've got to get my shit out. So then we we got very close because I, I don't know why, but she um she just really took me under her wing. And you know, I could really I could play. And then I remember we she was still, you know, she was after the gig we drink and we go up to a hotel room and drink, you know, and um she'd tell me all these stories about mm. working with this and Oh my God, so many stories. It felt like a really good collaboration in that, yeah. you know, she seemed a little underappreciated, underdiscovered, or, well, at, or you know, at that time. But like, what, she, what she said to me is that, you know, so we had all this time on the road and then mm-hmm. I said to her like, oh man, I'm a white, I'm white. Oh, you know, sometimes I think, can I play? And she went, honey, believe me, you can fucking play. So then I thought, well, okay, if Marlene Shaw says, that's what I'm thinking about it being a great collaboration. So, so you, you you do everything for her, but she's great validation for you and what you're doing at that point. So then what happened is we did Squire for Hire, and mm. I remember she came in, and my idea for Squire for Hire was was um, I was a big fan of the Benny Golson song called yeah. Killer Joe. Yeah, yeah. So I said this is my idea, and it's it's Squire for Hire is you know is. Uh, it's not necessarily me, it's a character. And Phil Asher had said, he called me the Squire for Hire because when we were recording, I go, I go, okay, I've got to go now, I've got to do a fucking wedding in Barnes, or <laughs> I've got to do a gig for Jaguar in fucking, you know, France, whatever. So he called me the Squire for Hire because, yeah. like I'm doing now, I'd always done corporate gigs. Yeah. You know, but I'd always, because of my personality, 
I'd always look good and I'd get on with the client. And, yeah. You know, that's part of my thing. And, um, and again, it, got, it speaks speaks to your very earliest yeah. experiences in music brought up in a well, family with well, you know, yeah. parents that had done that kind of work at various yeah. times and, and then got you into it. And jazz musicians, yeah. that's what they do, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. all musicians do yeah. it. You know, all, even huge pop stars have to do, they do corporate things, you know, and that's part of the job and I, yeah. and I enjoy you know, which is why I'm here. So, um, so, so Marlene says in her, in her, you know, sometimes, you know, he's got to do a square gig, you know, or a birthday <laughs> or two, you know, but, you know, after the gig or whatever, boy, you know, we'll go out and, so, so, um, but he all, she also based the character of Squire for Hire on another trumpet player, and is it? It's not Eddie, Eddie Harris. I can't remember his name now, fuck. But he was always very sharp. She, mm, mm. she told this to me relatively recently. So what happened is, 2003 makes Squire for Hire. That becomes fucking massive. Mm. So then, Marlena has a whole yeah. career resurgence. Yeah. And then I remember, she said to me in about 2005 or whatever, we were doing some gigs and she said, she said, honey, oh my God, like these days I have to, I have to sell, I have to sign more of your album than I do mine. <laughs> well, she's a real, you made a real star of her on that album. I mean, that yeah. track is fantastic. Well, was the opening track. That, that opening track is such a, such a great scene setter. Yeah. You know, it was one take. Mm, right, wow. And I remember she, I gave her the recording and then she had a little tape recorder in her room and, and I went up to her bedroom, I went up to her room and, um, and she said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. So she pressed play, mm. and she went, and she went, boy, he's got to show got a groove going. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I listened to it and I went, okay, great, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And then we went into the, I remember we went into the studio, and she did one take, and then the, the engineer and Mike Pat was there, and we went, fuck. Then she came out, and, uh, and she went, she went, that was that, and Mike was like, yeah, it was great, but um, maybe we could do another one. She went, honey, I'm done. And we're like, okay, <laughs> one take it is. <laughs> it, struck, it, struck, it struck me just recently how very, um, how Prince-like it is. The groove and the and, and her spoken yeah. thing. And of course that's because he was always referencing yeah. things like what she, you know, yeah. what she did and all oh, of she's that. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah. You know, at this point in my life, I, you know, all those years I had with Marlena, and you know, I did, I did Ronnie's with her recently. Um, we just, you know, nine gigs over six days, and we did, you know, two matinees or whatever it was, eight gigs in six days, and, and basically, I picked, her, I went to the hotel, I picked her up, and then we go down to the show. I went to the dressing room with her until we go on. We come off together, and then you know, then we go finish the show, we hang out, we have a few drinks and runnies, and we go back to our hotel room, you know. That was my whole week. My whole week was just mm. hanging out with my nanny, you know, and it was just, I took her out to dinner, I took her to Chilton Firehouse because, you know, my wife and I were, were DJing Chilton Firehouse, and now you can do your own, but at that point it was the, the coolest place in the world. Mm -hmm. The coolest place in the world. You couldn't even, you know, there'd be footballers outside trying to get in, they weren't allowed in. So I took my in there, and my wife and I DJing in there, you know. I'm hanging out with Mark Ronson, you know. Mark's wants to get Marlena on a thing, and you know, <laughs> you know, you two came in on, the, you two are coming in. I mean, you know, so that was, you know, 
that was my life then, you know, it was great. Mm. It was great. Um, and, and as well as doing, you know, but that was also whatever, you know, but for me, having that depth of relationship with Marlene yeah. and for her to take me on as a as an equal and to have and to share that, mm. you know. Well, this was that a true collaboration. It was a true collaboration and she's a true, um, as a true friend, I feel very, uh, that, that conduit to the old mm. is, um, well, it's getting less and less. I mean, not, yes, not many yes. people, yeah. there's not many left, man. Um, not, not many left. Now, you hinted at, you hinted at the kind of crash and the rebirth of making pretty much back-to-back -back two straight small combo jazz albums. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, it's no overdub, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, Opposite. yeah. Yeah. So what... What happens? What 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 really happens that gets you making that sort of music? And 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 where are you at in your life? <coughs> well, you know, after I made those two records, I realised that you know I did what I wanted to do, but you know, I've, one of my best friends, or if not my best friend, Mike Pato, who produced both those albums, I flew him down. You know, a lot of the sound of those albums is due to him. You know, we spent years researching mic placement on, you know, with, you know, um, Frank Lyko and Fred Plout were the engineers at 30th Street, right? We spent years researching 30th Street because we, you know, 30th Street was the holy grail, you know, listening to those Glenn Gould albums, the piano sound, which was the same engineers and the same piano was kind of blue. You know, listening to Take Five. I mean, I love what Rudy Angelo did, don't get me wrong, but from a hi-fi level, and you know, as you know, I'm, I'm a big yep. hi-fi guy, mm. not to be a show-off, but in my pursuit of sound, which started, you know, 15 years ago, mm. in my pursuit of sound, that is understanding how music was recorded, and then, you know, getting, understanding how tape machines work, understanding how analog works, understanding how compression works. Because the sound of that music and rock and roll, all music recorded up, up until the 80s, that's how we identify the music as. Mm. When a band records a jazz song, you know, on shitty digital equipment, it doesn't sound like jazz even though it's the same instruments and they're playing the same music. Mm. Why is that? It's because it's because our understanding of the idiom is so closely tied up with the technology. Just the same as you could say your understanding of video gaming in the 80s is tied up with video gaming. You know, it's like how we interact with technology mm. now goes back to, you know, the first, you know, iPhone is, is how we interact with the world. How our brain is hardwired to interact with jazz music and rock and roll with how it was recorded. Mm -hmm. So... I want to be able to hear the room or feel the room, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Well, it's, it's just a certain way that those guys figured out how to record jazz mm. in its immediacy. Mm. And I'm talking about... I'm not talking about 30s or 40s, you know. I'm talking about the golden era of which was basically from the early 50s, you know, mm. you know, um, you know, Sun Studios, Muscle Shoals, you know, 30th Street, you know, all of the great records on, on Atlantic, um, all of the great stuff with Rudy Mangalda, mm. all of the great, you know, Dylan records. I mean, Simon and Garfunkel, that was all 30th Street, same, mm. same engineers, 
Mm. You know, um, those tape machines. So when I figured out with Mike that Mike Beto that it was it was a lot about this gear, but it was about um, a way of thinking about it, and it was a mm. way of approaching the recording process. Um, then you know that's what we, we emulated. Like we, I found a mid-50s Ampex 300A which was the same tape machine as used on Kind of Blue. Mm. We didn't just use a Sturta 24 track, <laughs> we used a 2 track, a valve 2 track, you know we used all vintage mics, you know we 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 found all of the surviving photos of how they mic the drums up on Kind of Blue, you know. Mm. There's a, luckily I found a bit of stuff with Philly Joe talking about, you know, that actually he had a pair of cans on, did you know that? No. He was so far away from the band. Wow, yeah, right. You know, that he had to wear headphones. Now, who knew that mm. they were using headphones in the studio in 1959? People have got this idea that, oh, you know, it's the room. It's not, it's not necessarily the room because it's it's the echo chamber they use. Mm. You know, there is the room, yes, but... but well, it's, it's a component of it, right? It's a component of it, but yeah. it's really about that they sent the whole mix yes. down, yeah. which is what we did on Vermilion Skies, is we used the car park, and we sent some of the stems out into the car park and then put them back into the mix, which is what they did on, which is what they did at 30th Street. Mm. So, you know, we redid it at home. So, consequently, after I made those albums, you know, and I went, okay, I'm not going to do a winter, I'm not going to live in a museum. I'm going to take what I learned, but for me, it's about making music which is relevant to me and to my generation and to a younger generation. Mm. So then, um, I made five a day. Unfortunately, we had, we had time constraints. The record company was screaming at me to do this, um, so we didn't really finish it. What we did is we, as we finished it two years later, and I've since re-released that um, with some other mixes. Mm. And so I still think there's some great things on on five a day. Mm. Um, um, I really like this track Zootaloo, which is like a techno thing. Um, so, and then we did, you know, so there's some really good things. Um, then what happened is my wife got pregnant. Um, she was pregnant when I was finishing Five A Day. I came back to New Zealand and did some shows of which you came to. Yep, yeah, that's when we met. Which is yep. St. Fran. Yep. Which was a great show, actually, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Weekend, and we had to give him a trail and a gig. And yeah. I was feeling in a great place. Um, you know, I was, my alcoholism was really reaching a pretty big point in my life there. So, um, I th think I'd stopped drinking by then. Yes. So I came back to New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. I came back to New Zealand and then I, I, I stopped drinking, you know, and I was in AA for two and a half years. Um, so I... See you, mate. Take care. Um, so um, I had... I was a very unhappy, dry. Mm. I was very unhappy not drinking because, you know. Um, it was a lifestyle accessory. <laughs> it was a professional. Um, yeah. And I was a, it's a new dad. Yeah. I moved back to New Zealand. I'd leave London. You know, I had four years back in London and I was like, right, this is my chance. I had a, I had a great new agent. I was getting gigs. You know, Bowers and Brace had. Brave reviews. Mm. I mean, like high from UK Hi-Fi magazine 
which is like the world's, you know, best yeah. high-five magazine, ran a feature on me and my setup, and they were using Poets and Brace as their standard test record wow. to test all their gear on. That's well, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say that's about as good as it can get for you, and on, on was, a level, isn't it? It was because you know, me and Mike made that record, yeah, and I thought. In terms of pursuit of excellence, that's... Yeah, and we did it, you know, we did it. Yeah. And, you know, the musos weren't, didn't really understand, or even some of the... But the hi-fi crowd understood, because they're like, this is a mm. beautiful sounding record. And it is, you know. Mm. I, from the first time, from those first notes, it's like, you know, my favourite track on that is first Ebenez because as soon as it starts it's just I'm getting shivers thinking about it not because of it's my record but because of the mystery we managed to capture and that's the, what I was speaking about before the, the process of how we went about making that record is we we wanted to capture that weird sort of stuff that you get on those old records when you you can feel the spirits in the room you know mm. so yeah so it was going great my wife got pregnant and uh, which was great but you know on retrospect I was finding London very difficult I was you know I was early 40s or late late 30s I was like it wasn't it wasn't the London that I had you know cut my teeth on in the early mid 90s I mean you know London when I got there in 95 was it was very free there was there wasn't the crazy level of um, In London, where if you go a minute over, you get like an 80-pound fight. There was no congestion charge. There was there was no rich Russians. There was it was a lot emptier. There was still that you know you felt like you're still in a Michael Caine movie. Yes, but how much of that was that, and how much of that was you being 25 or whatever? There was that component of that too. Isn't there it? was that. Yes, <laughs> there was no East London. There was yes. still you know London when I got there was about the West End, mm. mm-hmm. and you know I was living. You know, on Wimpole Street, which is was in next door to where where, where McCartney lived, mm. in Wimpole Street, it was I think I was in 35, I was in 37, well, I can't remember. But you know, I used to walk in Soho, and you know, I went back, and there was nothing in, in the West End anymore. There was no record shops. All the record shops had closed down. You know, my my London when I left there was Saturday morning. There was there was over 25 record stores in Soho alone. You know, it was amazing. And um, when I got back there, there was nothing in the West End. There was the West End musicals, there was Ronnie Scott's, and everything was in East London, you know. And I felt very, quite weird about that. I was in my late 90s. Everyone, there was all this young crap was there. Mm. And all their hip finery, which is what I, I there's a, you know, um, where Navarino Street was about that. Well, the lyrics were about, you know, um, the lyrics were about East London and about, you know, just the... And so, yeah, I found that sort of hard. Then my wife got pregnant, came back to New Zealand, decided, okay, I've got to clean up my act. So I um, went into AA and I was pretty miserable, dry, drunk, because I, my medicine was taken away. Mm. And, um, you know, uh, then I got cancer. That's a, uh, um, that's a full stop and a sentence in itself. <laughs> you have documented a lot of that 
on the Well, that's the end of that part of my but life. That's the, yeah, but um, when you say, and then I got cancer. Well, that's the end of my life as I yeah. knew it. Yeah. Like, you know, luckily I've had a complete rebirth. So it's funny because I look back at my life and I've had these very big... Yes, you know, a series of yeah. rebirths following tumultuous yeah. scenarios. You know, but, uh, um, yeah, but, yeah, this is my... You know, this is my my spiritual awakening and the rebirth, which will take me through to, to the rest of the rest of my life. Because mm. I can't have any big health things in my life anymore. Mm. This mm. is it. Mm. Um, you know, so you know, I sort of felt like that something was wrong. Um, I, I'd lost a lot of weight, and I really was struggling to put weight on. And all my friends were going, "Fuck, you're looking really skinny," and I felt like I had something stuck in my throat. Mm. And I went to the GP three times and on the third time I went my wife was like you've got to go and you know so and I said look I really think I've got something wrong with me she said okay I'll book you in for an endoscopy so I went to the hospital and I remember um, you know they said okay we're going to stick this thing down you know and there was a team there three people and I remember them I couldn't see but I was sitting like this they're standing there looking at the screen and they went and all three of them went like I I remember it they went Well, we're going to refute, and it was literally like literally that was it. And the surgeon, the the, uh, the guy went, uh, the surgeon went. Well, I don't know. It wasn't a surgeon. It was a specialist. He went, okay, um, you're coming in tomorrow. And he said, uh, you've got a very large growth here. He said, um, I don't know what it is yet. I don't know if it's cancer. Um, it looks like cancer and it's behaving like cancer but I can't tell you. So I went back and you know, then I had what's called a multidisciplinary hearing about three or four days later where they have, um, up until then I didn't know, I had about five days. Well actually yeah I had five days and then he said to my, the next day I went right I need you to come in today because we need to operate on you because the growth is so large that it's impacting on your airway. And I said well uh, I just did a gig in the weekend, and I was just, I, I just ran up, um, I just ran up One, one Tree Hill this morning, and he went, what? He said, how are you able to play? And I'm like, well, I thought I was playing better than ever. He said, okay, look, you're coming into hospital tonight. And I said, uh, I've got a corporate gig, I'm, I'm doing a Christmas party for Louis Vuitton, and the Louis Vuitton store. <laughs> he, he'd been to all my concerts, all of the surgeons, yeah. big fans. Actually, my surgeon, he did all the work because he'd already bought tickets to my show. So I said to him, look, you have got tickets to any show I do for the, anywhere in the rest of my life. <laughs> he said, oh, that's great. But I've already bought tickets to the Civic. Anyway, so... Um, well, at least that meant he was really invested in getting it right, you know? Well, like he... <laughs> I'll tell you. So, I'll tell you. So, so I went in and he said, okay, look, I'll organise for you to come in to the hospital after after your gig. So I do the gig, I go back home, I get my bag, I say goodbye to my wife. You know, I get a, I get an Uber to the hospital and I check in, you know, operate it on the next day. That was not really a serious operation. I was only, only in for two or three days. I went back out and did another gig. Um, then I had a multidisciplinary hearing with my wife and my mother and my mother-in-law. Three surgeons and a surgical team. There was about 25 people in the room. And they stick a scope down. You're sitting there, it's like nine o'clock in the morning. 
I'm not telling you I didn't know. I said, right, uh, Nathan's got advanced cancer of the hypopharynx, which is in my throat. Um, we're going to operate on him on, he's going to be admitted on Boxing Day. Um, they were going to do it before Christmas, but oh no, let me have Christmas and it's my son's birthday on the 24th. It was his, it was his third birthday. So okay, we'll admit you on Boxing Day. Um, so we're going to, so we're going to do um, a very large operation on the 27th and you'll be in hospital for uh, a month. Then we're going to, depending on how you go, then we're going to do another very large operation and you'll be in hospital for another month. Okay. Um, so, then I went, um, I went home and I went, okay, right. So, uh, <laughs> I went, okay, well, um, <laughs> thank goodness I had life insurance. I also, so um, my wife contacted life insurance. Um, I wrote a will through my good friend Karen Sowich, who'd been my lawyer, and it helped me get out of a publishing, a long protracted <laughs> publishing deal I signed with Simon Gregg. <laughs> and I wasn't speaking to Simon at that point. So, you know, between watching Paulie disintegrate in front of my eyes, that's why I wasn't talking to Alan or Simon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why, anyway, oh, that's another story. Um, so, Karen, bless her, did me a will and said, don't pay me, you know. Got my will together. Because the surgeon did say to me, I, there's no, there's, there's 900% chances here. He said, you may completely lose your voice. You may not be able to play saxophone again. Um, anyway, so he said, look, one of my very good friends, actually, the, the, my best man at my wedding, was, this, was the surgeon who worked on Adele's voice. So I'm going to call him. So called him, he got, got some advice from the guy who did. Adele didn't have throat cancer, buddy. Mm -hmm. I'll bring him those. Mm -hmm. Then we had another meeting. He said, okay, you know, I've got some options here. What's more important to you, that you lose your voice or that you continue playing? And I said, fucking hell, man, I, I want to be able to continue playing. So that's... So what happened is we, he did the, the first big operation, which was nine hours. And then nine hours is pretty much the longest amount of time that you can go under mm. general anaesthetic. Um, so they went in through my jaw. So I had a sore jaw for three months. Like you'd been walloped? Well, no. Mouth French over for nine yeah. hours. Yeah. Oh, that was the least of it. So, so nine, hour, nine hours, just to keep me under for nine hours was, um, so I woke up and um, this is my voice, so well actually my voice was okay, what happened to my voice is that the scar tissue from the surgery, they removed the very large tumour, the scar tissue when it hardened it pulled my vocal cords apart on one side. So there is nothing wrong with my vocal cords. So you heard me when I did that concert with Jonathan, mm. which was the most amazing mm. thing for my recovery was to do that music because that was at the yeah. start of last year. Yeah. So I, you know, I was incredibly ill, mm. but I, for some fucking reason, I, I went okay, I'll do the concerts, and mm. I did it. My wife thought I was completely mad. As did the promoter, as did um, 
Johnson. But Johnson was great, you know. Me and Johnson always been close, but fucking hell, after that period, yeah. we became like brothers, man. Well, it was a beautiful concert too. Yeah. It was a really well. I put my everything into yes, it. You know, I could barely, I could barely stand at that yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was luckily morphine got me through. Well, we talk about finding your strength and vulnerability yeah, well, and I guess this has happened to you a few times but never more yeah. so than with yeah. this. I so was gonna I was gonna mention that, you know, as an outsider, I mean I'd met you, I'd only met you the one time but I didn't, and I knew your music, but I remember being as is the way with the medium, but I remember being glued to your Facebook posts about your your process, your ordeal and particularly yeah. about your recovery. Yeah. And I thought this is um, you know, you're incredibly brave yeah. to do this. I guess there's no other way to approach no, it. There was, you know, because so from that, so the most difference I'm hearing, my, you know, my wife and my mother, they they hear I've got cancer, and that I mean, the surgeon said, okay, you, but you know, I might never talk, I might never play. So I go, yes, I get my affairs in order. And, um, you know, I also speak to APRA and they said, okay, we will look after you for a bit. They paid my rent, you know. Um, I just did some things, you know, I sold some stuff to make sure I had some money and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so then I get out of that operation. Well, basically, I spent the next six months of my life on morphine. Um, I went through a lot of pain, physical pain, but the first operation wasn't too bad. But the second operation, which was, well basically I couldn't eat, so I had to feed through a, no, through a thing in my nose. I couldn't swallow water for many months. I couldn't swallow anything. I had to feed through my nose. You know, I lost a lot of weight, um, as you can imagine. Then I was on smoothies for about, you know, I went down to 60 kg. I weighed more than my wife. I weighed less than my wife, mm. you know. I was like a freaking, Anyway. You're not short, so that's a real... Oh, man. Yeah. I was just... That's a really small yeah. number. So, um... So... Then the second operation, which is when I went... And they took out all my lymph nodes. And to do that, they had to sever a load of, um... main, um, nerves in my arm to get them. Then put them back together. So after that, I had a drop shoulder and I couldn't lift my arm. So I, I'm, I managed to play flute, but I, I was like, I was literally like that, mm. and I had constant pain in my shoulder. So if you were to look at me, I was like that. So I did a lot of physio, um, and yeah, I couldn't. I could only go like this. Mm-hmm. I was wondering what, what what were the stages of sort of um, of processing? Are you thinking like, oh well, I might not be able to play again, and then we could try to reconcile that, or I may not be able to lift a heavy saxophone, yeah. but I might be able, as you say, I might be able to play flute. Like, are you thinking that, or are you th- at all, or are you thinking, no. or are you thinking, you know, I've got a wife and child, and I want to be here. Look, I never entertain the fact that I, for one, I never, never, never entertain the fact that I, that I wouldn't make go through it. I also never felt sorry for myself. I, um, you know, I remember having one point going, why has thou forsaken me? <laughs> you know, but I did a lot of, I did a lot of 
spiritual work in hospital and I contacted, you know, one of the things that I did, because, you know, I'd already had a couple of years in AA, what I did do the day of that multidisciplinary hearing when I told them, when they said I had cancer, I went, right, I'm drinking again. I said, if I'm going to die, I'm going to drink. I didn't need much convincing to stop going to AA, you know. So, um, so, I... But I'd already been through all of the steps. Well, no, I, I hadn't done the steps, but I'd heard about them, you know. And I remember hearing people say, you know, making a list, an inventory, and then making amends to all the people. So, you know what I did when I was in hospital? I contacted Simon. Because that had been a big thing for me, was like, and you know, there I was in hospital. I had a lot of time by myself. You know, I was a new father, and, you know, I'd been through that two years of incredible sleep deprivation. Mm -hmm. And also, the fact that I'd come into fatherhood very late in my life, early 40s, I had this big conversation with Gary as well. I'd been a selfish bastard, and all of a sudden I've got this... I couldn't do what I wanted, and I found it really difficult. I was like, you know, I'd spent the first two years of my, my son's growing up um, fucking stressing that I couldn't make another record. You know, I wanted to make another, I wanted to, to make a record a year. You know, I said, oh, I'm going to make a record a year. I had no idea how much fatherhood would, would impact on me. And, um, you know, I had a conversation with, with Phil from from um, Warners who said, well, you know, I bought him some demos and he said, sorry, Nathan, based on your last physical sales, well, I can't give you any more money. Um, you still don't recruit from the last one. And to be honest, you're the sort of artist who sells physical, we're getting out of physical, and very soon after that, they don't even do physical anymore, Warners. Mm. It all goes through Rhythm Method. Mm. All of their stock went to Rhythm Method. Going on your basis of your history as an artist, you know, you've, you've sold a lot of records for us, but they've all been physical, you don't, your fan base don't stream, we can't do another record for you, we're dropping you. Okay. So then I spent six months going from everywhere to Roger Marbeck to fucking Murray Tom to all the rest going I want to make another record you know Roger Marbeck said if we for everybody who came in what, asking for another copy of A Million Skies if you know if I could give you one dollar you'd be a millionaire I said okay let's do another A Million Skies Roger said look I'm sorry I can only give you five grand and I went Five grand doesn't even cover my fucking lunch budget, <laughs> you know? Five grand, you know, for many guys cost 30 grand to make, you know? I put in 10 grand of my own money into that record because it went over, you know? Mm. I mean, I think I got, I think I, I can't remember, I, I got 20 or fell and I put 10 grand in myself, I think was what it was. Anyway, so, um, you know, I got very despondent. I was like, fuck, you know, I'm a new father. I've come back to New Zealand and, you know, work was very difficult. You know, I, you know, I mean, sure, I've, I'm selling out the Civic now, but fuck me, if I, you know, I was getting promoters lowballing me on fucking, wanting to do their shit, shitty festival for fucking four grand. You know, I'm like, how am I supposed to fucking live? How am I supposed to live? Then I get cancer. So, so I just thought, okay, right, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, I've been asking fucking God for a sign. This is this is it. Mm. This is the big fucking sign. So then I went, right, this is the sign. And then I just went, 
you know, I've got to take this as a, you know, I didn't go, fuck, oh, I just went, I honestly, it was a relief to me, and I've said this before, but getting cancer at that time in my life was the best, was the biggest blessing, and the biggest relief for me, and the biggest blessing in my life, because it gave me a chance to actually stop and look at myself in my life, and it gave me like a pause, and I was like, yeah, the first time in my life, I didn't have to worry about myself, and because I was like, I was in hospital with a fucking with people worrying about you on your, you know, on your behalf for you. You know, and you know, it made me realise that how anxious I'd become. You know, anxiety. You know, and you know, anxiety plagues the music industry. And you, you put, you put, you put drugs and alcohol into it. You know, I've seen. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of my friends die. And very flexible. Um, Lack of sleep. Very flexible pace schedules. Yeah. schedules not knowing <laughs> how you're going to pay the. You know, mm. not knowing, not even knowing how you're not even going to pay the rent, but where your fucking career is going. Mm. You know, dealing with things like negative reviews, or, or just, or people not coming to your gigs, or promoters lowballing you, mm. going, oh, you know, I can't afford that. You're not worth that. You know, the record company who I'd had gold records with going, you know, you're not selling enough records. I mean, how can I not take that personally? Mm. You know, how how can any human being not take it personally to go, okay, I'm Nathan Haynes. Nathan Haynes is the person who people are coming to see. How can it not affect me personally? So all of a sudden that was that was what I'd been asking for. You know, on a very deep level, I'd been asking for that to be removed. And it was removed. <laughs> so I went, well, okay. And then I wake up in hospital, fucking high as a kite on morphine. I'm like, hey, wow, I'm back on morphine. <laughs> and I loved it. I wanted to say earlier that it must have been, you oh, know, I like, it. I didn't want to be too. No, <laughs> Honestly, there must have been a bit of a perk for a recovering a, addict of various kinds. It was comments. amazing, man. That was amazing. <laughs> you know, one, I remember one point. Um, you know, because it's administered through my um, thing, but mm. you know, I uh, I'd had I'd had a drip and and um, you know my veins are rebuilt themselves. But when I you know I remember I remember going for a blood test uh, you know many years ago, twenty years ago, and they said, "Fuck your veins," are, you know. So mm. I've still got vein. I was intravenous user. Um, I you know I was going to do it. If I was going to do it properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know. My veins had shut down, and they were finding it difficult to find a vein. No, yeah, there. And, and well, I, there was a problem with the um, administration of the thing. So, I remember the nurse had to, uh, had to do it intravenously. And I remember getting that hit, and it brought back so many memories. It's like, you know, I read this with other, but it's like, it's like stepping into a warm bath, you know, I was already high, they give you so, I was on so much drugs and hospital, but, you know, when it hits, it's like, and, uh, yes, I remember, well, this is definitely, this is definitely perk, so I didn't have much pain, I had a lot of difficulty easing. The real pain started for me when they sliced my neck open, and there was a particularly gnarly photo when it looked like Frankenstein. I don't know if you remember it on my Facebook feed. And that was when I remember looking at myself, you know, getting out of the hospital bed and then looking at myself in the mirror, going, I I went, 
How the fuck did I get here, man? The people. How the fuck did this happen? But I knew how it happened. Mm. I knew. That's the thing. I knew how it happened. But I thought. I remember saying to my wife, like, how am I ever going to get better? Because, you know, I got out of hospital. And that's when they're really hard. I got out of hospital. Then I went through radiation. Then I thought, you know, halfway through radiation, I went, oh, this isn't too bad. At the end of my radiation, I was like, because the end of radiation, I couldn't eat because my throat was so swollen. You know, there was skin falling off my neck. Mm. My, my neck is a lot. I've got the, like, the neck of an 80-year-old. It's just, it's like, I'm sure you probably can't tell, but um, I've got a big, the scar's here up well. Yeah. Like, the scar runs like that. Yeah. But the radiation is like, my neck is like, I look like I've had burns. And not only that, but the skin is all pretty, you know. So now I'm, um, I've also still got very little feeling, like when I have a shave. Mm-hmm. It still feels really weird. But, you know, um, luckily this came back. Yeah. You know, my shoulder, I threw physio, you know. Um, I still have a lot of long-term stuff from radiation through, like, um, I have to drink at least three litres of water. My saliva is still quite thick, but I've got... Um, saliva because a lot of people mm-hmm. you know the, the radiation now is very pinpointed 20 years ago they used to blast you yeah, yeah. you used to lose taste forever and used to lose hearing and now this might not have been the well it might have been but it might not have been the very first thing you thought when you went through all of this but you can also play okay so I remember when I was in hospital they let, they let me out they go okay you can go out for a few hours, you know. Mm. So I'd go and I'd go home and I'd see my wife. There's a few, there's a few pictures on my Instagram, and that's when I was eating. I couldn't eat, and I was three. You know, so my brother would pick me up and we'd go to the museum. We'd go out to the Winter Gardens, mm-hmm. or, or I'd go home. And it was the middle of summer. It was so surreal because you're in hospital, and I'd go outside, <coughs> high on morphine, you know, and um, with this thing in my nose, you know. Um, I was coughing a lot and you know I'd go home and it was like being in a dream and I'd see my son and um, Dylan, that's interesting, Um, Stan gets up and um, so I'd go and it was like being in a, um, it was like being in an Ingrid Bergman film, I don't know if you've seen Wild Mm -hmm. Strawberries, Mm -hmm. I saw it recently. And there's, this, there's those very idyllic, sort of bucolic scenes of when he's eating the cream and the strawberries, you know. And, um, you know, what's the one when he's playing chess with death, you know. Uh, it's such a fucking great film. Um, you know, and, yeah, so I felt like I was in, in a Bergman film. And, um, and because was, I was just in this idyllic, my wife and my son, we're having a picnic outside, you know. Um, that was okay, but why, why I'm telling this story is I got my horn out and I remember playing it and I went, and I went, oh. <laughs> I could play. And then I went, you know, thank, thank you, you know. So I was already thinking, you know, I was already thinking, well, spiritual epiphany. So then I went back into hospital and I, 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 by the way, the first time when I woke up from surgery was 
Steely Dan. No. <laughs> God only knows. Oh, fantastic. By the Beach Boys. Fantastic. Now, why? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, I do not know. But I remember literally, literally, I remember waking up from surgery like that. And son of God only knows. So when I, um, a couple of days later when I was a bit more, you know, because I'm a big, I'm a big, um, I only buy original pressing. Mm. So I went on and just cogs and I bought an original pressing, which only cost like $150. <laughs> um, then, funnily enough, I get out, so then I, I got that, and I remember going one of the first days I had, I'd also at that stage, I, my wife had bought me a book by Mur, Muraka, Muraki, mm. uh, Murakami about this, the one he did with the conductor and the conductor oh, talks yeah. about yeah. Glenn Gould. So, Really yeah. <laughs> yeah, so then I go and buy all of the original 30th Street Columbia mm. six eye pressings of Glen Gould. Um, so then I get home from hospital one of the first days, and then my wife had to go out. And I remember setting myself up on the couch and then playing, playing um, pet sounds back to back, yeah, several times. Then when I then I back to back I listened to the Glen Gould um, with Leonard Bernstein, um, mm-hmm. Bach piano concertos back to back, you know, with mono cartridge, mono pressing, you know, like fucking every time in my life. <laughs> um, the new the new heroine, the new yeah, heroine. but on heroin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listening to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, then then funnily enough I get out of hospital and my son's going through a real Beatles face. So then I'm like, right, I'm gonna get all the Beatles records, original pressings, which I did. Um, but I do stereo for um, Let It Be and um, but all the rest of mono. Yeah. You know, and that that was great man. And then learning relearning or learning of those records along with my son in mono, which is how they should be listened to. Mm. But I can't do remastered for stereo. <laughs> I find it's pointless. Yeah. It doesn't sound like the same music. It's like when I listen, when I first got a mono pressing on a mono cartridge and heard um, Love Supreme, all of a sudden it made sense because you so stereo Love Supreme is fucking like friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saxophone over here, Elvin's over there. Yeah. But then when I was like, oh, right, I see. And then, you know, same as with all jazz records. I can't listen to any of their Rudy stuff in stereo because, because it's... Um, the, the saxophones and the drums aren't supposed to be separate, it's supposed to be like that. Mm. You know, anyway, whatever. Um, so, yeah, so then, my spiritual epiphanies, I get hold of Simon, and Simon's like, I'm so glad you're hold of me, and then, so then, that opens the doors to Simon talking to Adam, and then Adam talking to me about shift left. Now, I find it very unlikely that all of this all of these amazing things that are going on in my life now would have happened to me if I hadn't got cancer. So that's why, you know, I've had a complete personality change. Uh, you know, I, s- I, I got out of hospital and I rebuilt myself, you know. I continued drinking, but then in February last year, I went, Okay, I've tried the I've tried the controlled drinking. You recognise that yeah. you're one one drink away from going down Disaster. the waterfall. Well, I just thought I was like, you know what? It's not such a big deal. You know, like those that two and a half years I had when I was incredibly miserable, you know, and 
I was incredibly resentful that I couldn't drink. Mm. Like, my friends who can... You know, my brother said to me on the weekend after, and I was talking to him, he said, you've always been somebody who's taken things to the extreme. Like, I came over to his house in my Vespa the other day, and you know, I, which I have restored fanatically. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm a fanatic. Yes. My, you know, when it comes to hi-fi, I'm a fanatic. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I just know that about my personality, and which means that I'm a fanatic when it comes to music and about doing things right. And I look back on my, on my output and I'm, you know, I'm glad I'm like that because, you know, the difference between doing something well and doing it exceptionally is that, is that last 5%. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that I'm exceptional. What I'm saying is that, uh, for me it's graft. For me it's like, okay, like for instance, when we got the, when we got the masters back from the vinyl for Shift Left, you know, I listened to them, and as soon as I put them on, I went, this is shit. I played it to, I played it to Alan, who's the same, and he went, this is shit. So I did an A-B comparison with the, with the digital master that I'd given them, the pressing plant, and their master, A to B in a studio, and the stereo image, I swear, was bought in about 30 to 40%. So I'm, so here's the, here's the stereo files I've given them. Here's what I got back. And I said that to them, I said, this isn't good enough, you know. They went, they went, this is within the standard parameters of how we work. Mm. And I said, that's not fucking good enough. So, Universal have got a whole massive schedule, and Campbell Smith, who's managing this whole project mm. in LA, mm. my shows, I went, sorry guys, but, you know, and they went, okay, fine. So then it took another, it added on another two or three months to the whole schedule. And then I get my, I get my, um, the masters back from the pressing plant from Blue Note, who were doing all the Blue Note stuff, put them on. Hallelujah. Not only do they sound as good as what I gave them, they sound fucking better. Mm. The vinyl for Shift Leaf sounds, I'm just so happy with it. So, that's the 5% I'm talking about. Yeah, and to, you know, like, to be exceptional, to, to, to even strive for exceptional, well, you have to know you're trying to do that, right? You can be, you can be very good on a natural talent. Yeah. A person can achieve very good things yeah. because, like, for example, taking your story, the work has been done constantly from an early age, so you're yeah. gonna, I think, probably always do something that's very good. Now, you might not think so, but most people are. Yeah. But you striving for exceptional, if you, if you get there, and you, and you well, have... I have to. Yeah, you... you it's you, in my makeup. You have, but... Exactly I don't know, I don't always reach it. I don't always reach it, but... No, but you... But you, it's the, for me, the process is more important. Yeah. Than the outcome. The, the, the fact that you're trying to yeah. get there means that you you will often... It's the process. Now, now I realise that it's the process which is more important than the outcome. Mm. You know... So, for instance, me taking that gig on when I was so ill now. With Jonathan. Back, yeah. yeah. But I, for me, it was it was the best thing I could do was because I, I stopped me thinking. But let's describe that gig because it wasn't just you getting up and playing no. the saxophone again. Because that would be something. Like, given, you know, given this whole story of cancer, that would be enough for a lot of people listening if they don't know this gig to go, wow, he got, he got up and he played Mary Had a Little Lamb on the saxophone. No, 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 no. You played a... Marla's Night. <laughs> you played a classical performance at, at an arts festival. Well, Marla's that was Night. That was the most difficult thing I've ever done. 
yeah. like on a technical level. Yeah. I mean, it was quite difficult when I did the stuff with the NZSO, but yeah. with, you know, with Alan Broadbent, but that was still very, like this was completely out of my comfort zone. And I was like, I was like, I had to learn, like, fuck man. Yeah, but it gave me something to think about and, and Jonathan was really great. And I mm. also, there's a, you know, I, I listened to, um, you know, there's this, uh, there's some great stuff on YouTube of Bernstein conducting the, the, the London Phil mm. and, um, or was it the New York Phil? I can't remember, but fuck man, Lynn Bernstein, Jesus Christ. So that was my, I was like, okay, this is my new benchmark. <laughs> I'm not saying I did it, but, you know, it was just a really good thing to do, and it was really great. Then, you know, then the radiation, but then I, I managed to pick myself up, and then I had a couple of gigs, then, uh, then it was really all about, it's all about what I'm doing tomorrow, mm. which is playing, uh, you know, we did a show in Nelson, which was amazing, but it feels like, doing this interview now, that my whole life has come to this point of doing the show. Now, mm. I don't want to put too much emphasis on it, but I don't mind that. Uh, not petition, I've said it. <laughs> but I'm comfortable with that. Mm. I'm ready for it. Um, and I will do the best I can. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to freak out there and go, oh my God. Because I just think that tomorrow for me, and at this point in my life, and, you know, I would have loved to have a new record out, but in retrospect, once again, cancer has stopped me doing that. It's... It's made me look back on my life. It's made me think, okay, what have I done the last 25 years? And then I think, going back and listening to the, that record I made, it's it's been like going back and listening to a time machine, mm. going into a time machine and thinking, well, that was a person. It's made me also realize the level of musician, of the musicians that I was playing with at that age were amazing. I was so lucky to play with Mickey and Miguel and Kevin, even even though Kevin's the same age as me, you know. Mm. Um, but it's really the rhythm section on that, you know, Mickey's drumming in particular. And, you know, I made an album with Billy Cobham, who's one of the world's greatest drummers, but I still mm. love playing with Mickey. I think he's it's just a good drummer, if not better. He's my favourite drummer. And um, he has this incredible sense of... He makes space in the music, you know, and there's a lot of space in when I listen to Shift Leaf. That allows us to do what we do. So, this point in my life, talking to you now, you know, on, on August the 23rd, 2019, um, you know, it, do, it does feel like that, I, that it's come to this point. Once I've done that gig, mm. now then I get, then the rest goes on. I wanted to say, you know, you know never mind. Um, fishing for a new record or a record contract. You're a guy who liked English at school, worked at a newspaper, understands journalism, and you've got one hell of a story. Why aren't you pitching a book? I mean, this, this what we're recording, what we're recording now is is just a mild plot spoiler. You know, it's not the whole thing. I mean, in Whispered Asides, you've mentioned, I haven't even picked up on them because there's so much, you've mentioned being on a Jamiroquai record, doing an album with Billy Cobham. You've got stories for days. We can't get through all of it. Gary Steele couldn't hold his word count. He had to go, and he, he had, what, a couple of thousand word count and it ballooned to about 10,000, you yeah, know, like, yeah. so, so there's lots. Obviously, you, you want to do more, but is that something you're no, thinking about? No, no, because, um, because I feel like I'm only just starting. I feel like that this is the beginning of my life now. I feel like that, you know, I feel like my, um, 
alcohol in my addiction just has, has it's held me back. You know, I've, I mean, in February, I mean, that's it. Now I'm, you know, I'm back in, uh, you know, deep recovery with a, with, a, with a sponsor. But it doesn't feel like I'm starting again. You know, now I'm incredibly grateful that I don't have to drink to mm. drugs. You know, you know, like I said, I felt very resentful that I wasn't allowed to drink. You know, now I'm like, I'm, I'm thankful I don't have to. Mm. I never have to experience a hangover every day. I never have to. I never, now I'm at that point where if there's cocaine going around the band room, I, I don't have this thing like, oh, I really want a line. <laughs> because I've made that decision in my mind. Yeah. Through, you know, through working program and working with a sponsor. I've, you know, I'm at a point in my life now where that's not even an, I've got the rest of my life to live free of that, you know, and from the age, from a very early age, you know, I look back at my life, you know, I had only, I had a very, I know, my parents, if my parents hear this already, they don't like me talking about drugs, but, you know, I got a, I had a very loving, supportive childhood. My parents have only been incredibly loving and supportive of me to this day, you know, and, and, and of course it's cringeworthy when I talk about, you know, my addictions, but that was my journey and it brought me to this place, but I'm, you know, God willing, and I'm not sitting going, oh, but like, God willing, I am at a different point in my life where I'm able to live, you know, I, I, you know, I'm able to live without having to even think about it. I mean, that's why I look at someone like Kevin Field and what he's achieved, and where there's a level of musicianship. He's done it without drugs and alcohol, you know, and a lot of musicians nowadays do it without drugs and alcohol. You know, I had a romantic notion. I, I was a very romantic person. But I tell you, you know, when I found out that I was a heroin addict, it was the fucking most least romantic thing in my life. I remember, um, you know, Pete Doherty, you know, I read an interview with him recently and I was just, oh my God, it's just, it's, it's, it's so not nice, it's just so ugly, you know, heroin addiction is so not romantic, there's nothing romantic about it, you know, okay, if you're a young teenager, sure, even, you know, being, you know, there's romanticism about booze, but when you're fucking, you know, in your mid, when you're in your mid-40s, stinking of booze, you know, drinking constantly just to quell the fact that your life is a fuck-up and that you can't stop drinking. What's, what's romantic about that? You know, I very much doubt that, um, you know, I very much doubt, who's the great um, uh, French chanteuse who was a terrible alcoholic? Um, uh, you know, yeah. Jatem, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. who did the, uh, did the albums with, um, who did the albums oh, with... Oh, Serge Gainsbourg. You know, I very much doubt in the, la the late stages of his alcoholism, mm. it was very fucking nice. You know, one of my best friends, you know, died. An alcoholic, it's just... It is so awful, and mm. it's just so sad. It's so sad. <laughs> I, that's what I mean. I feel like I'm at the beginning of my life, which is why I'm not ready to write a record. Um, you know, maybe when I'm 60, 
you know, if I'm still here, there is no reason why I shouldn't be. You know, health for me is the most number one important thing in my life. And, uh, you know, I, the way that I live my life now, you know, making sure my I keep my anxiety in check. And, you know, I don't even drink coffee. Mm. You know, anxiety, mental health, and my physical health is are the most important things in my life. And they're, all, and they're all completely linked. Yeah, my sobriety, my mental health, they're all linked, you know. That's my, my emotional sobriety, that, which um, goes hand in hand. My mental health, you know, that's the most important thing. Mm. My wife and my child. You know, my, my love of music, not my career. My love of music, and I make a very big distinction. Mm. You know, I buy more secondhand music in my life than I've ever done. Music to me is more important than it is in my life. My career, it's not, it's just not important to me. And, and it is, of course, because then I can't mm -hmm. pay the bills, but my grasping and holding onto that is, um, yeah. I've let all that go. And then it'll be, you know, you know, even. Uh, emptying the silver scrolls, I can't imagine that it's happening to me. You know, things are starting to open up in my life and, yeah. and, and I hope there will continue opportunities for me. I feel like I've reached a point where I've got a lot more to give as a human being. Um, you know, I'm sure my addictions and my personality got in the way of a lot of people even wanting to talk to me, let alone work with me. So, you know, um, that's, that's where I'm at, man. Now, about 90 minutes ago, you said that you um, had a fight with your father and walked out and went and lived by yourself. How lasting, how fleeting or lasting was that? I oh, know I'm very close with my father and, um, and mother. That was just what had happened at the time. Um, Almost a rite of passage. Of course, and I, you know. I hope it doesn't happen with my son, but of course there's going to be a point where... There'll be something. There'll oh, be... I'm, I'm thinking about that already. My kid's only seven, and I think oh, about like, I think about where where tight as, and I think about when's the mo you know when's the moment when we actually have a real serious fight of of a kind, and it's in the post. Of course, man. You know, I think about the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, definitely. Like, I, I like thinking about it. No, no, neither. But it's there. It's, it's, you I catch just, yourself in moments, particularly when you reflect on, say, your situation with your own father. Yeah. You know, when you when you think yeah. about that, you you, you we've spoken. Have... You know, we've spoken about it, and that was the other. You know, when I said in, in the hospital, the other conversation I had was with my parents. You know, mm. and um, that was a great conversation. Uh, and I felt, I felt, you know, very cleansed after that. Simon was a great one. Um, I had some other conversations and with people who I had lost contact with, and you know, you know. Then recently, through some other stuff I've been doing, you know, what I found out is a lot of it was in my own head, and you know, after 47 years of carrying stuff around in your head, and it's great just to be able to. Let it go off, you know, there's, there's, there's that song I wrote on on, uh, on Sky for High called Let It Go and you know, Rich Medina is such an amazing guy and he um, he just came, he just did that um, amazing workshop that was put on by um, by, Jay, by uh, Jesse Jeff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard about it, but there's all these amazing people at this conference music thing, you know, and, and he was there and I look back, you know, I, I had... Um, 
I had Rich Bedeen living in my house for a week, you know, and he was touching on some amazingly spiritual stuff. He's a very deep guy. And when I was listening to Squire recently, I listened to that track and I was really listening to what he was talking about and it's about letting go, you know, and, and I guess he could see that and with me when we made that album that I had a lot of <laughs> you know I was going through a lot of stuff and I'd I was pretty fresh to to you know being out of heroin addiction and I look back at my life and that it took me a long time to get over that you know it took me uh, I don't know if you've spoken to, to Martin but uh, you know when Martin got to London who should he call but you know I was I was using it then you know so I um, you know I don't know if I should be telling you this or whatever Martin my of mine he's clean now but you know we were using together in London <laughs> um, but you know it, it takes a lot you know it took me a long time to recover from alcohol you know become an alcoholic it took me it's just the emotion what you go through emotionally but, you know, amazingly enough, I've always had music there as myself, you know, and that has always been the, the great healing force in my life and it's able to, enabled me to deal with addiction, but able to deal with, like, deaths of really good friends, mm. you know, like Paulie. Mm. I guess, too, with addiction, there's the, there's the baggage that you accumulate that gets you into that position oh, and then man. there's the baggage you're accumulating while you're in it and that man. becomes very opaque uh, so when you when you start to try to reconcile you've got yeah oh it's huge yeah you've the got, baggage is huge you've got the real work to do yeah the baggage is huge but you know it's the only way to you just got to take it just the way, same way as I dealt with my cancer I was like or the same way as when I got to a point in my, in my music and I went I need to really learn what I'm doing, you know, I need to, I can't call myself a musician unless I really, you know, I know that, I know I had to write down an altered chord, I, I know I had to write these changes out and explain to somebody else, this is how I approach playing over 251 chord progression, this is how, this is, this is how, this is how I write down my, some of my musical concepts, you know, I mean, I remember talking to some, to some musicians about chordal harmony, which is what you know, mm. uh, um, which is what McCoy Tyner's whole sound is. You know, fourth step, yes. fourth. Yeah. You know, and I remember when I got to that point in my musicianship, I emailed Dixon Nacy, who's a jazz guitarist, who's a, he does a lot of teaching and stuff. And I said, "What's McCoy Tyner doing there? You know, chordal harmony." And Dixon went, "Bro, I learned about chordal harmony from you, from the bridge of twelve and shift left." <laughs> Like, I was like, what the fuck? I didn't. <laughs> and so then I and I went, oh yeah, it is. It's cool. So you know, I've got a, I've, I've got a, 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 a bass note, and then I'm doing fourths over the top, which are fourths apart, which is the bridge, which is the bridge in, in twelve is fourths. Ding 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 ding. ding. <laughs> So yeah, I was like, oh yeah, it's really McCoy. But you see, that was going in. And it came out. So that's why I know all that music went into me and then it came out in a, in a cool way. But, but I got to a point and I was like, okay. So, so anyway, yeah, I, 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 I faced these things head on. You know, I didn't face my drinking head on, but then I got to a point and I went, 
alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. You know, when it was like, when I, when I went, fuck, I'm a heroin addict. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do about it? You know, I had to. I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life being heroin addict. Fuck that. I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life being an alcoholic. Just the same as I was not going to spend the rest of my life being a miserable, dry drunk. You know. So yeah, I, I feel like I've got the tools, and I'm, and I'm but I'm. I have a genuine joy to my life that I felt like I've never had. I feel very incredibly healthy. You know, I'm I'm able to live in the present. I'm able to watch my son grow up. You know, I'm able to. I've just realised I've been a very anxious person, and I see it in a lot of musicians. You know, I've got a very young friend of mine who's an incredibly promising piano player who I'm mentoring. He's in who's Europe in Europe. He's going to be big. I can see it. You know, but. You know, I met him in university, and I'm like, "Fuck, it's like a, it's like an 18-year-old version of me." Mm. You know, now I see why people like Wyndham took me under their wing. Now I see why Marlena took me under their wing. It's because, and now I see it in young musicians. But I also see in him. You know, I see future addiction. I see all of the stuff. Yeah, well, you can I see it yeah. as a personality trait. You, you know, can see it. so maybe, maybe my the next part of my life might be into helping people with addiction, particularly musicians, because it, I just see it as a it's a perfect storm waiting to brew. It's a very rare person who can go into this business and be offered free alcohol and drugs, and to to be a well-rounded yeah to either manage that or refuse that it's yeah and that's why and you know what the options are you clean up or you die well I look at you know there are only a handful of people when it comes down to it that have longevity that have gone through that ringer and actually that's what I mean yeah. you either clean up or you die I look at someone like Robert Plant as a shining example of that like no one has a bad word to say about him but he recognised it himself very early on at some point that he was turning into a fucking asshole, and yeah. he obviously had some yeah. almost insurmountable tragedy in his life it. too some people so, can do it that's true well it wasn't without a toll I mean you know he, he lost a child and a relationship at an, at an early age I mean it was it's not something anyone wants but all of those pieces, you see him now as this person in love with music, mentoring people, um, yeah. turned on to things, yeah. not just not just playing Led Zeppelin songs every no. night the same way they no. were done, actually no. reinventing them and reinvigorating no. himself. There's everything good about it, but he paid a price. Yes. I mean, um, there is, yeah, you either clean up or die, or you're someone of that personality who... Who can who realizes early on, you know, or you're just not that type of personality. Um, you know, I do think that there is a. That's why I don't want to write a book because I feel like I've just started, you know. So, um, so it's a great place to be, man. I, I um, you know, if I could have imagined talking to you now in a, a year ago, I said this to my band the other day at, at rehearsal. I said, look, guys, you know, if I could have imagined getting ready to do this and do, you know, play to the Civic mm. and, you know, have this album being re-released and all this love around it and this love around what I managed to create and all this love, oh, it's just, I'm quite, over, I'm overwhelmed, man. I've been so overwhelmed, incredibly overwhelmed that people, that people are coming to, to my gigs and that I've got, 
you know. But I, but at the same time, I feel like I've got something unique to offer through my journey, and I'm ready to take it to the next level. You know, I'm looking for an international manager now to get me out there and to be and to be telling my story on the world stage. I'm ready. I was not ready a year ago. I was not ready two years ago before I got cancer. No fucking way. I had too many fucking personality hangups. <laughs> I've still got hangups and I'm dealing with that every day. But, you know, I've got a lot to say. And I don't mean verbally, but I've got a lot to say through my instrument. And the differences between now and other times in my life, when I put that horn in my mouth and, and I'm playing, I'm telling, a, I'm telling a story. And when I stood next to Marlena all those nights, she's telling a story, but... You know, when I hear great you know, great musicians, and I'm not calling myself a great musician, but what I'm saying is that when I hear Miles at the end of his life play one note, it's one note, mm. okay, look at it scientifically, he's playing one note, it's a D over that or over that, you know, he's blowing through a piece of metal. Why is it so heavy? Maybe it's your perception, oh, it's Miles Davis, but even if I hear something of a really heavy musician, I don't know them and I hear it, I will stop on my tracks. Like before when I heard that Farsight thing or whatever, I was like, it just, music stops me in its tracks when it's the real deal. Yeah. When I hear someone young, it's when I hear someone, it's the real deal. You know, when I hear something, it's the real deal. It stops me in my tracks. Quite a lot when I listen to BFM, I'll be driving along and it will, I, I heard, um, I heard Incapable by Roisin Murphy recently, I was driving along and I had to stop the car. I'm getting shivers thinking about it. You know, that track is so fucking good. I mean, it's just, forget about it. She's amazing, but that track in particular, it stops me on my tracks. Now, that is, what I'm saying is, there's artistry and, you know, God willing, but I, I feel like that, well, I know, I don't have to make any excuses. I know now that when I stand up on stage and I play, then I'm, I'm just bringing all this to my life. I'm bringing the pain and suffering of my... And the funny thing is, and I said this, I remember one of the first days I got out of hospital and I said it to my mother-in-law, but, you know, and I, I really realised that this is the whole thing of what I'm talking about and why I'm going on about it because I'm going to finish up. But, you know, I said I wanted the pain. You know, unfortunately for me, you know, as a teenager I wanted the pain because I heard it. Because I wasn't stupid, because when I was, you know, I've been listening to music my whole life, I had really great ears, I heard the pain. And you know, it wasn't... You heard the pain and you sorted out? Well I did, you know, unfortunately for me, I did. You know, and unfortunately for my, um, for my, for my loved ones, um, I'm not saying it's been, it's been hard for my wife and for, you know, I feel very selfish that I, uh, I feel selfish that I, that I put that on to my friends and my loved ones. But it was my, uh, it was, I guess it was my journey and I'm, I'm, I'm through that and I'm not living in, I'm not living in that. And yeah, I've, I've paid my dues, man. I've paid my dues when it comes to pain and suffering. Um, but I'm not living in that now. Mm. Which is why I am, um, which is why I'm able, I'm able, I just have a joyousness about life. And I bring that to my music. You know, I don't have to fucking live there. I'm so, I'm so grateful I don't have to live in there. 
Because even though I've had an amazing career, um, I, I just feel like I'm at the start. If I can free up that part of my life, then who knows what I'm capable of. Mm. You know, that's, that's it. Should we leave it there? That's yeah, perfect. Yeah. Especially yeah. with those horns in the background, the, the hot eight, yeah, yeah. not the hot eight brass yeah, 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 band. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I love this. Um, I love. I love this fish. Party was on. 